Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. My name is Rockin' Randall Bullburn, and uh, today we're here to talk about the Apple TV Plus original series, an adaptation of Stephen King's Lisey Story. Uh, This is uh, produced by J.J. Abrams' Bad Robot Productions, directed by acclaimed filmmaker Pablo Lorraine. Uh, He's behind the Jackie movie, starring the Jackie movie. That's what it was called. The Jackie movie. Exactly. Starring Natalie Portman. Um, And uh, yeah, we got Julianne Moore. We've got Clive Owen. The gang's all here. Very excited to discuss the... A reunion we've been waiting for. It's the comedy that you've been waiting to hit, Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, Um, We've been talking about this one for a while. Uh, We're talking about the first two episodes today, as those are the two that dropped on Apple TV+. And uh, we're going to be splitting up our... We're not going to be doing every episode week by week. We're going to be doing this in two-episode chunks. So after this uh, episode, you can expect to hear us back after the fourth episode is aired when we'll talk about episodes three and four. And those will be exclusive to our Patreon. So if you're a Lisey's fan, you're going to want to come down to the Barrens. Let's just say (laughs) uh, we all float down there and... um, we all bull down there. Ooh, it's a great bull, bull hunt. Uh, it's a word that can parents. mean many words or many things as we learn in this. Um, let's go. And then also, just so you know, we are covering the book as well. We'll pro- we're going to be doing that later this month. So uh, we're going to keep spoilers for the book for the rest of the series. Obviously, uh, uh, they'll be not included in this episode. We're here to talk about the show, and that is it. So, uh, but let me introduce our panel. And uh, Mike, say hello and what is your familiarity with Lisey's story coming into these episodes? Well, this is Michael Monroeville Mall Rothman, which actually seems pretty fitting because there is uh, there are some Pittsburgh ties uh, to uh, this uh, the story. But um, this is my first time reading uh, Lisey's story because I'm going to be on the book episode. So I'm actually not all the way done with the book. So I'm glad that we're not going to have a lot of spoilers on this episode <laughs> because... <laughs> I'm still about 70% through uh, the book, uh, and uh, let's just say I don't don't know how Lisey's story ends, but I know how it begins, and that's all that matters. How romantic. I know, right? (laughs) So uh, I'm very excited uh, because there's a lot to talk about. (laughs) A lot to talk about, yeah. Uh, Justin, say hello. And what was your familiarity with Lisey's story before watching these episodes? Hey, this is Justin Julianne Moore Gerber. I didn't come up with all a good right. nickname, so I, I just like looked it. through my notes randomly. Of all the great, cool nicknames I could have used, why not You're use a legend? You're wearing red. It fits. I yeah. am. I'm in honor of her amazing red hair. She I'm sure that's what you day. were thinking when you wore the red shirt. <laughs> I was wearing a, a black shirt, and I just ripped it off before we hit record. <laughs> oh, my God. I, gotta, I have I to honor her hair. It is staying yes. character. Um, hey, uh, winter fire. My heart burns her, too. Um, 
Randall, I'm glad you asked. I read this book when it came out. I think I'm pretty sure I still have the great, the hardcover of this is really awesome, but we can, you guys can talk about that in the book episode. But I, I read this, I guess it would have been fall of 2006, and I really liked it a lot for several reasons. Do we want to get into that stuff now, or uh, um, do we want to hold off on that? Let's hold off on it now. Okay. Well, I guess you can say what you like about the book in a broad sense. Well, and good luck transitioning out of this. But I was trying to remember why I like this book a lot. I remember in the early days of the podcast, we would talk about how I really wanted to get back to Lisey's story. I think it's kind of underrated. And I remember, and I kind of had forgotten the exact plot and the story 100%. So I went back and kind of skimmed it over a couple of days ago, and I went, that's why it connected with me so hard. And it's because, um, you know, my, as you know, my mother passed away in 2008, and she was really going through, like, the last really tough run around the time this book came out. So I think I really connected to this woman going through it in her own way and obviously trying to reach out and somehow connect with uh, those who have passed. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really why it hit hard with me uh, all those years ago. Yeah, but um, yeah, I really love this. I really love the book a lot. L- reading back on it, and while the show is really not how I pictured it in my head when I read it 15 <laughs> years ago... I really do appreciate the vision of, of the director here, which I'm sure we'll be discussing. But uh, good luck transitioning out of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you love the book. We love having you here, Justin. And uh, who else is with us? This is Jen Baggunky Adams. Oh. And uh, <laughs> I, I read this book on my chronological reread a couple of years ago, maybe four or five And I don't want to say I hated it on my first read, but I really did not like it. And I think there's one particular part that really ruined the story for me. And I don't want to spoil that. But if you've read the book, you might. And and you've ever heard me talk about anything. You might know what part I'm talking about. Um, And I reread it this time and I really liked it a lot more. I think partly because I knew that part was coming and I could kind of mentally prepare myself. And I also think the show had a lot to do with me really enjoying the book a lot more. I feel like I kind of understood what the what the story is more and it seemed like it it just connected with me I don't know if it's just a different time in my life too but yeah I mean I'm I'm really enjoying the book a lot more I'm like 70% done too I think and and I've seen the entire show but I'm gonna hold all of my thoughts oh you watched all all eight episodes wow I finished them all yeah oh boy here we go so let's let's go through this real quick so you've seen all eight I've seen two what about you Randall four Mike two all right good so this will be fun no, to I'll try just and navigate. I'll lord everything spoilers. over all of y'all. <laughs> well, you know, it, we, we start with the tour, the, the two first, which is, yes. you know, me and Justin. And then uh, we go to the four, and then we go to the eight. So, so yeah. basically, when Mike and it's I say, mad. like, I wonder what's going to happen next, um, we can't look at the Zoom with Jen and Randall because they might give <laughs> yeah. away, nope, that's not going to happen. Or, just like giggling yeah, wildly. We can't, I can't <laughs> look. Tee hee hee. Okay. <laughs> I also read this book around when it came out. Um, and I struggled with it when I was younger. I just didn't have kind of a connection, I think, to the material, but, uh, rereading it now, and there's definitely a lot of truths about, you know, marriage, uh, and long-time relationships and kind of the inner language of marriage and the, and long relationships. I think that's here that there's a lot to discuss. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll reserve, uh, my, my, my grander thoughts on the book until later, but yeah, let's talk about, let's. I guess let's like begin with sort of a recap of these first two episodes. What happened? Because there's man, we're jumping around all over the place in these episodes. In these episodes, mm-hmm. so let's do sort of um, 
let's let's sort of pinpoint what the actual story is in a section we're going to call the Great Bull Hunt. I'm on a bull hunt. What's a bull hunt? Like a scavenger hunt Scott and his brother made up when they were kids. Ah, yes, it's the Great Bull Hunt. Welcome, everyone. Uh, the game is afoot. It has begun. How does this episode begin? It begins with a, a little girl sitting on a swing and a quote. Every marriage keeps its own secrets. That's a line that is attributed to Scott Landon. Our favorite who, author. He's our favorite <laughs> author. You may also know him as Stephen King. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, Scott Landon is sexy as ever (laughs) (laughs) Stephen King and just as he would in his in his biopic will be played by Clive Owen Mm -hmm. and uh, so yeah so we open with that Uh, Scott Landon is is the wildly celebrated author and husband of Lisey Landon formerly Lisey DeBusher Lisa DeBusher that is Julianne Moore's character and we open with her uh, swimming in a pool, as various memories uh, sort of uh, surround her, kind of sets the stage for the very uh, fluid, I think, um, yeah. uh, sensation of watching this series, which dips in, in and out of various timelines, much like when you go for a dip in the pool. Am I right? Um, uh, but we get some glimpses of Scott's work. We see all these different posters uh, and uh, kind of the breadth of, of how many books he's actually written. Uh, we cut back in time to Scott at a school library christening. And uh, he's there to uh, you know help open this library. And then somebody emerges from the crowd and shoots him right there. Uh, Lisey screams. It's all very sad. Uh, then she's wandering through his barn. There's papers everywhere. Uh, it is a, it is uh, it is uh, conveyed that Scott is gone. He is dead, and she finds a clue, and it says "Bool first clue," and it directs her towards a doctor. But we don't know what that is. So lots going on just in these opening moments. Uh, what was your guys's sort of reaction to the way that we're sort of thrust into this maelstrom of memory? I guess you could say. I mean, I was taken back by the visual palette. You know, I think that this show is mm-hmm. so visually driven, which makes sense considering that, you know, Pablo Lorraine has quite an eye, uh, as we saw with Jackie. And then we also saw No, it's uh, another great film of his, but also uh, has a hell of a cinematographer, too, behind it. Uh, mm-hmm. This is Darius Kanji. I think Kanji is uh, the, the last name. But uh, so and he's worked with like Refn. He's worked with uh, PTA. Uh, I mean, everyone out there, even the Safties. So he did uh, Uncut Gems. So like you have two wow. really, really strong eyes that are behind the, you know, behind the camera here. And I think that really comes across in like the first two minutes of this show. I mean, I was just taken back by how gorgeous this thing looks. And I, and I mm-hmm. think I texted all of you just saying like, this might be the highest quality or highest definition Stephen King adaptation to at least hit the small screen. I, I guess you could debate the, you know, the merits of uh, Rob Reiner and, and Frank Darabont. Muschietti. <laughs> Muschietti. But in terms of small screen, I, I just, this is a quality that I don't think we've really ever seen before. And that was all that was circling through my head. Um, while watching this, uh, first off, even well, Mike, beyond I know the you were on the episode, but Randall and I, we watched Nick Harris's Desperation from 2006. I feel like the, <laughs> the visual palette was uh, beg to differ, Mike. Breathtaking, yeah. breathtaking. Yeah. 
yeah, it's our, it's right up there, you know, with uh, uh, you know, the city of lost children, uh, and, and desperation, right there. Fred yeah, R. yeah. Baxley's Storm of the Century. No, I do like Storm uh, of the Century a lot. That's not. Fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that's really what th- that took me away uh, immediately. And honestly, it's something that's carried on in the two episodes that I've watched here. Um, but uh, I don't know. What what did you think, Justin? Uh, I agree with you 100%, Mike. I think that was one of the first things I texted the group the other night was just, this thing looks great. And my nerves about this from the beginning, you know, listen, I love Uncle Stevie. He's not always the best screenwriter. <laughs> so I was very nervous about that. But this this is definitely, you know, a, a director's medium. And, and, and this director is taking full advantage of that. I, this seems like it's really just as much his vision as it is the author's. Mm-hmm. Which you can't say mm-hmm. about a lot of Stephen King work, right? Don't you feel like a lot of Stephen King, especially TV work, is kind of feels like it's in service just to get Stephen King's words onto the screen? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. doesn't feel like that at all. Yeah, and this really feels like somebody who has a real clear vision of what they want to do. And you know, I've only seen two episodes, but who knows how this is going to end? I'm not looking at Jen, uh, but uh, <laughs> poker face, total I'm poker pretty, face. Uh, I don't know. I'm kind of uh, intoxicated by this. And, you know, I'm, I'm a real, listen, I love the Criterion channel. I like a nice slow pace to things. And this definitely delivers in spades in that regard. It kind of just yeah. takes its sweet time. And what really struck me, I hate to keep beating a, a, a drum about this, but imagine if, you know, the stand had like this type of patience and mm-hmm. you could have stretched this whole thing out for three seats. Anyway, uh, yeah. we that's don't neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah. Looks great, Randall. It looks great. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I think with uh, I think what you're saying about director's medium, it makes a lot of sense. This is a, a book that is is a lot is a lot dreamier than a lot of King's other work. The chapters sort of bleed into each other. Timelines bleed into each other. Uh, it really does operate like the like a memory operates, like uh, kind of folding in on itself, in and out, and in and out. And I think that that does really lend itself to a visionary director. So obviously, mm-hmm. I think they've made the right choice. Well, and it's perfect. If you think about the structure of Jackie, mm-hmm. that uh, is Lorraine, right? Lorraine, yep. Pablo yep. Lorraine, that he directed. It's very similar. It, yeah. it kind of bleeds in and out of scenes, going through time back and forth. It's just it's almost structured just like this in a lot of ways. Yeah. In terms of the time jumps, so they they really were considered consider about who they hired as the director. I think. Yeah. Yeah, and it feels like a really strong marriage between like the director and the screenwriter, and I think it mm-hmm. helps that it's King writing this script. And like you, Justin, I was very nervous when I heard he was adapting <laughs> all of that because you know um, I'm on record as not really loving his dialogue, but um, I, I think it, it really works. And I think it it feels like it, the story is told emotionally rather than linearly. You know, yeah. like yes. it because it's like the framing of it really is like there are two frames of like these first few episodes I think is her swimming in the pool which has this really drifty quality and then her unpacking the study and it's like she's unpacking like we are unpacking it with her because we see all of these glimpses of the past and then the present like she'll look up and the present is there and it just it's it's gorgeous it is stunning mm. and the first thing that I remember thinking was one um I want that pool and then I thought <laughs> I want that bathing suit because I was just obsessed with it and I think like when I look at it it almost feels like Julianne Moore's just aesthetic in general was like the singular muse for the look of this which mm-hmm. I think really works because it's Lisey's story and so it really feels like we are 
totally with her you know Mm -hmm. even when Mm -hmm. we're with other characters it still feels like we're with her which I think is what kind of keeps it really focused because I mean yeah compare it to the stand which is another story that really went in and out of timelines and I feel like I never really lose track of what's happening here you know no no I mean it's telling that it opens up with her as a child right like yeah swing and that's a memory it opens with a memory so like the fact that you're really laced in through there kind of does set the bar of like where this is going to take you narratively but at the same time the show isn't beholden to that too you know like it, it is going to be able to shift point of views just like the book does um so i i think that's important to note also that it's mm-hmm. not just tied to, to her mind but i will say one of the things that that you know we'll obviously discuss as we're you know going over the, the first two episodes is the fact that like like the book and I guess it's not very surprising considering that King wrote this as well, but like the book, it really does this really interesting funnel approach to memory in the past mm-hmm. where it could start with Lisey's memory, but then it'll shift over to Scott and it'll go through Scott's memory into his own past. So you're really going mm-hmm. through this like wild journey, this wild rabbit hole of the, of like what memory and, and past and memory is. And cause I, I think w- w- one thing we will discuss a lot on the book episode, I think is the concept of the past, right? And mm-hmm. how memory instills so much of, or defines what the past is and how the past really never is the past because it's all defined specifically on people's memory and memory is subjective. And I think yeah. that the book really gets at that a, a lot of times. And I think this show does a really good job at that too, without obviously getting lost and muddled with the, you know, with the thematical nature of that argument. But um, anyway, that's all to say in the first two minutes of the show, that's what I got out of this entire thing. 118 more minutes to go. Yeah. The Langoliers eat the past. So the past does not exist. Do the the Langoliers show up in episode six? um, I mean, I am not, mum is the word. (laughs) What a crossover. Yeah, she opens the barn doors and they're like, (laughs) the Langoliers and then like Christine's revving in the distance. Oh, I hope so. God. Wakes her up in the middle of the night. Craig Toomey's back. Um, so Mike, you split up what happens between what's going on in the past and what's going on in the present. Did you want to talk through sort of how you see it in that regard? Yeah. So, I mean, what's interesting is that because the past and the present is so interwoven in the book, um, I I think that what the show does that's really interesting is that like it uses touchstones, not only just from the bull, you know hints but also just like objects and memories to be able to kind of weed us in on pieces of the narrative that we really need it could only have been king that adapted this because Mm -hmm. there's it's such a mathematical approach to this narrative that like you really need all these little pieces to for this all to make sense because it's a fucking wild story and you know so many puzzle pieces are essential so when i was you know doing the chronological beat for beat narrative i was like well, wouldn't it make more sense to kind of split it between the present and the past? And so when I was looking at these first two episodes, I did that. And I found what was interesting was that there's a lot of action that's like driving the story around, you know, narrative wise, but it's really propelled by all the fuel you're getting from the past. And I think that that Lorraine and, and King do a really good job in making it so that you're never really in the past too long or the present. You're just kind of in both and it's a weird place to be in because it can be a little uh, disorienting. 
Yeah. Um, I never really feel too hazy or too like nauseous with it. I, I feel like they do a pretty good job of being able to juggle both. I don't know. It's really smart. I, I, I just thought, especially having just read this stuff and realizing how many t- like tangents that King goes on in the book to get to the points. Like I thought it streamlined really well here, especially since we're only in what, like for the first five minutes of this episode. So, yeah. So we go on to learn like essentially, um, Amanda has been in a state like this before. She is in a state of, you know, emotional turmoil and trauma brought on by her ex. Um, And we learn that this, a very similar thing happened to her a long time ago and that Scott was the one who helped pull her out of it. And the question is how? And we actually do get a flashback to, uh, and this is one where if Lisi knows the answer to this, she won't acknowledge it. And what we see is a pretty surreal sequence where Scott basically, like you almost think it's an affair going on because he he kisses her, but then he pulls back and there is water rushing from his mouth into her mouth. And there is the implication that he has some kind of supernatural connection to some kind of like healing, you know, water, power, whatever it is. Um, But this is something that, the show hints that Lisi has a connection to and knows of, but she is not at a place mentally where she's able to acknowledge it, even though it sort of dances around the edge of her memories. And um, yeah. And then the other glimpse into the past that we get uh, here is we see their wedding Um, and she dreams of it. And in the dream, Scott basically tells her that now that he is gone, he is sending her on, you know, a bull, which is essentially a scavenger hunt. And at the end of that is, you know, something that I think remains a little bit blurry, but the implication is that it will help her help Amanda. And that is sort of the thing that is binding these. Whereas in the present day, we've got Amanda basically having a breakdown. We see her, uh, break a plate in her hand uh, and basically start cutting herself. And it's really disturbing and hard to watch. And then um, we meet Lisey's sister, Darla, who's played by Jennifer Jason Lee. And the question is, how do they help her? And the, the uh, bull hunt that Scott has started essentially leads Lisey to call the doctor at this uh, recovery facility where um, he is like, oh, yes, Scott already set up a whole thing to help Amanda when she'll need it. All you need to do is bring her in. We'll find a place for her. Um, and then kind of juxtaposed alongside all of that is uh, Jim, who is played by Dane DeHaan. And here we learn that he has been hired by this professor named Dashmeal, uh, played by Ron Cephas Jones, to help recover all of Scott's old uh, papers, unpublished manuscripts, things of that nature. And uh, but the thing is, uh, Dashmeal didn't really know what he was getting involved with when he hired this psycho. And uh, so we've got Jim, who uh, we see in a series of vignettes. Uh, that he is perhaps um, unhealthily obsessed with Scott <laughs> no, Landon. No, 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 to say the least. <laughs> very, very natural fandom, and uh, and then he, you know, calls Lisi and says that he will do horrible things to her if she does not give up those uh, papers. So, um, a lot going on in this first yeah. episode, but mm-hmm. I do agree with all of you that. It's never too... I think that it would probably take some getting used to for people who haven't read the book. But I think that the elegance and the slow pace of the show 
is what can I think help you adapt to this style of storytelling, which essentially weaves out of the past, weaves back into the future, and we get someone like Jim, we get someone like Dashmiel, and then we go back into the past, and Scott's back, and then we come back, and we've got Amanda, we've got Darla, and so we've got these storylines that are, you know, branching off, but then all of them are connected to what's going on in the past. And that's Justin. To... Oh, oh, sorry. What were you oh. going to say, Justin? Oh, I was going to say, and and again, I haven't read this in fifteen years. So yeah. I, at this point, it's almost a passing familiarity. I never felt lost. That's great. Yeah. I, I always felt curious, you know, which I guess is always the intent of the director and the writer. So mission accomplished in that regard. But you, you can't be on your phone. Yeah. No, God, to, no. You cannot no, no. be on your phone because things just jump around so much. It's the ultimate anti-phone uh, show. Well, it's yeah, also I just like that. every detail counts, you know, mm-hmm. like, uh, yeah. it, like even just small things like, you know, we, we were talking about uh, the sisters, right? They're all, all of them have their own trouble, you know, the traumas and troubles, you know, like uh, Dara, like Dara basically is talking about how like, you know, I wish her husband would stay away forever, you know, like, mm-hmm. so clearly her relationship is not great either. And then, <laughs> you know, you, you find out little things about like, you know, that, that really do tie in thematically you know like for example at the dig it's it's kind of subtle just because it's so embedded with all the action and you know clark's uh compositions and score for the show is swelling and but you hear you know dashmill say like you know about scott saying like there's never been a writer who has so seamlessly joined the realistic and the fantastic which seems to be a summation for the show itself you Mm -hmm. know um so it's just like it's just really well thought out and um, again, like it's, it's pretty astounding. Cause like I, I, you know, when, when I obviously we mentioned before, like one of the anxieties going into this was like, well, how is King going to handle this? You know, is he going to let go of certain yeah. things? And I think that in the first episode alone, you get to see the fact that like King has certainly let things go and he's streamlining things and he's, he's getting to the real meat that's on the bones here. And I, and I, I got to, I applaud him. I'm, you know, I think this is, he's kind of going back to his 1989 pet cemetery days where he just (laughs) gets the essentials and that's what you need. And yeah, you know, so. And it's so smartly done. Oh, sorry. Um, It's like so smartly done because like it is very economical, but it never feels like they're jamming story in because we Mm. still have this, like these moments where they just linger on the pool and like really set the atmosphere. And I think another thing that kind of lends to the cohesion is there's not like a, a wash of, oh, we're in the past now, you know, other than the fact that Scott is alive and she has longer hair, that's really the only markers we have that we are in the past now. So it really feels like it's drifting back and forth, you know, which yeah, I like think nothing, helps kind of anchor it together. You know? Yeah. Like nothing ever pops up and says like 1986. Right. There's no like <laughs> star yeah, wipe or like harp, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah Justin, agree. what were you going to say? Um, Oh God, what was I going to say? That's a great oh, question. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I've, I've totally lost my train of thought, but something in terms of the mood of the show, has anybody here seen the show Dark? Uh, yeah, it's very similar to that. No, so, I have to. I want to. It's got this overwhelming dread going mm-hmm. on, and and we'll talk about the music later on. But the music uh, reminds me about that uh, very much. I will interrupt. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Um, speaking about the, the the screenplay, I do wonder how much was cut from, especially mm. from the first fifteen minutes, because there's hardly any dialogue. No. Yeah. And I find it hard to believe that King would have written. <laughs> uh, let's be honest. I, I find it hard that King would have written a 15-minute intro to the first episode with really little to no dialogue except for speeches and the occasional, you know, bull phrase here and there. 
Well, he does to love like, Bosch. Does so? Does anyone watch Bosch? Is there a lot I, of? I think Bosch, <laughs> Bosch always uh, opens with a soliloquy. No, I'm kidding, oh, so I have does, no idea. There's a lot of dialogue <laughs> in Bosch because maybe he's just like Hi, watches my that. Name's, and notes. My name's Bosch, and I'm um, here at the uh, the department. <laughs> We're dealing with some more crimes. Won't you join us? Well, I think they did a search and find for the word smucky and gunky and yes. um, inkunk, and they cut all those out, and then there's barely any dialogue. So yeah, people on the on the, on, on their Discord uh, really have had some major problems with some of these words. <laughs> I, oh I got to well, join them. I'm going to join them too. They're not I alone. I don't remember it being that. I feel like I would have remembered Oof. if I had a huge issue with all that when I was younger, but uh, I, will, know, I, I, trust, is, I definitely trust them the most. So. That has been my biggest gripe and one of the reasons why I've like literally had to reread pages of the book just because I'm like, what? Like, Schmoopy? I mean, Shmoopy. I say some stupid I say some stupid shit with Sammy sometimes. You but do, like, you do. I, nothing to the point where like I, I don't know there's the, the level of intimacy and the severity of what they discuss sometimes in this story I'm just always like is this the word you'd use so I, I'm kind of exactly. glad that like as especially when we get into the second episode you kind of see that like that's really just pretty much removed from yeah this right. yeah there's one so, word that's kind of uh, tossed out but uh, yeah yeah so I'll say that there's one piece I haven't discussed in this episode yet before we move on to episode two and I think it relates to a question that I have in the world of this series that I've I'm personally confused by uh, so we see that Scott after he's been shot he's in the hospital uh, the nurse says he's in critical condition and that he's gonna need a lot of healing and um, a lot of time to heal and Lisey says well the Landons are all fast healers we go into the hospital room and uh, Lisey sees that he's gone and the sink is overflowing and but then she goes in she turns off the water in the sink she comes back and he's in bed and he seems to be doing better and so it's implied that he did not die uh from the shot which if i were watching this show and i hadn't read the book seeing him shot and then knowing that he's dead at the beginning of this show i would assume that he died because he got shot but then the show doesn't ever clarify how he did really die unless i missed it so well, did i miss it no, nope. uh, it doesn't. Uh, well, I guess it doesn't mention that the rest of the show. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I will say that's a point where I would be confused. Um, we do. I swear learn... in the book it's mentioned. It is. I, it, oh, yeah. In the book, it's no, the book goes as... in detail for like 100 well, pages. <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong. In the book, you do think that that's how he died. But then they tell you how he really died. Isn't that what happens? Yeah. Sorry. Maybe I misunderstood what you were saying. Yeah. It's not mentioned in these episodes. No. But it does. Yeah. You will find out. Oh, yeah. okay. But so I, think, I will uh, say that that's a little jarring at the beginning. I just know that I per, like I'm confused in the sense that is King streamlining to the point? Because I initially thought mm. King was streamlining. So, oh, he did die when he got shot. But then we see the scene in the hospital. So it's like, oh, okay. No, he was getting better. Yeah, I think the yeah. I think the nurse's prognosis and the fact that she says, "Oh, the Landons are healers," I think that's the confirmation. Like, okay, that wasn't it, right? Um, yeah, but that's I do what I figure too. Yeah, and I think that what what to kind of discuss what you were saying with like the the faucet. Sammy brought up a good point where I think because she's reading the book also, and it seems as if the the faucet turning on and off is King's way of showing that's the way that he gets taken yanked out of the mm -hmm. Booyah Moon world in this in this show, which I I, I don't I mean I don't think that's the case in the book per se. it's not you know? it's not it's more of just a mental thing and yeah. i actually like that choice because it does activate it a little bit and makes it a little bit clearer to the reader yeah. although i want to point out here have any of you guys ever had a sink overflow it's a fucking nightmare oh yeah it sucks i actually it was my, my 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 pipe in my sink was leaking two days ago and i woke up thank god it was just dripping 
but it was coming out of the bottom of my uh, kitchen sink, and I was already I like was screaming at my <laughs> poor uh, maintenance man on the phone oh. about it. But it's a night it's a nightmare. Yeah, seems. I'm just saying like there's nothing worse like the what the damage that can do. Yep. So I just think, uh, come on, there's got to be a better way, Scott. But, um, <laughs> So it never feels like it's overflowing. It never it just always feels like it's filling up. It's yeah. on the cusp. It's always yeah. on, on the cusp, cusp of... and that's dangerous enough. It is, so, yeah. He's like a wet so bandit over here. Here comes Landlord <laughs> Randall <laughs> over here. <laughs> Landlord Colburn. Yeah. Uh, well, let's move over to episode two. Uh, we begin here with uh, Amanda is in the recovery center, uh, and she's semi-catatonic, I think is a good phrase for it. And we see that she has been transported to this other world that has been hinted at in the previous episode. We call uh, might call it the Booyah Moon, which is what we learn is a phrase for it in this episode. And um, she's watching a pirate ship off in the distance with some little girls on it, and it's called Hollyhocks. Uh, it's a little bit, I think, confusing what's going on. We see people <laughs> surrounding her. There's people wrapped in plastic. So we got Twin Peaks crossover. Yeah. We got... Um, there's like this whole stairs that goes down to the water and everybody is shushing. And there is the implication that there is a monster that is in the distance. And uh, Amanda says things like um, it takes the bodies and keeps the souls. And she also mutters something about being a double. And she says, that's why you can see me uh, to when the, I believe it's Darla or maybe it's a nurse. I can't remember is talking to her. So um, we get the sensation that Amanda is, in this state, perhaps trapped in this world. Although what this world is, we're still not fully clear on. Well, it's it's interesting too because there again, what Amanda says is not just like gibberish. Like I think like what's and this is kind of sad on my part, but like usually when I see like characters that are in a kind of psychosis or fugue state, like in pop culture, when they're just kind of like mentioning muttering things, I'm always usually like acclimated to think like, oh, it's just like you know weird gibberish. But, like, in this case, everything Amanda says is, like, really essential to the story. Uh-huh. Like, she's like, it's so hungry. It takes the bodies. It keeps the souls. So long. You can see why it's still here. And it's like, you know, if I'm Darla, I'm like, okay, you're going in. <laughs> That's right. enough. Like, Enjoy. you know, you, you already burned the macaroni and cheese earlier. Like, God damn it. But, like, mm. in this case, like, what she's saying kind of explains why all those other people are by the shore like the first thing i thought of was uh the great robin williams classic what dreams may come mm. uh where what a mess th- scared the <laughs> shit out of me <laughs> well to be honest with you that is someone that that you know was a, a, a jewish kid that went to a catholic school uh, learning about the afterlife has always scared me because uh, let's just say it doesn't really end up well for uh, the jews when it comes to catholic <laughs> afterlife but uh, anyway um so watching what dreams may come always gave me the the, the heebie-jeebies. Uh, probably one of the scariest movies of the '90s. So when I saw this, uh, I was like, "God damn it, we're going back to that!" Like this is kind of creepy to me. It's a little Dante esque. But when Amanda mentions the souls, and mm-hmm. you see everyone there you know, sitting on the shore with her, it made me wonder. Like maybe it's not just Scott and Amanda and Lisi or, you know, all the main characters that are able to cross over in this world. Maybe there is, um, there are other souls that have similarly been able to figure out how to cross over in here. I mean, granted, I haven't gotten that far in the book, so maybe they answer that, but that was my kind of takeaway from Amanda talking about the souls with Darla, even though she's kind of like, you know, talking to the doctor being like, Oh, she's lucid, I guess. But, so. That, that seems to check out, Mike, because near the end of the second episode, I believe, Amanda is talking to, I believe it's a spinoff character from the, the Conjuring universe, the Bride. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh-huh. the Valak? Her veil. 
uh, Valak and the nuns are there too. Yeah. No, but um, and she does say something about how she has to atone or something for killing her kids. I'm assuming that's somebody who also. She says, uh, "I need to. Th- I point. need to think about why I killed them." Yeah, Ooh, creepy like, line. Classic kind of like, king, uh, mm-hmm. uh, enigmatic line. You know. Yeah. Well, the important thing to remember is that they took the souls, but they never moved the bodies. They never moved the <laughs> bodies. Uh, James Cameron shaking. <laughs> so yeah. we um we move then to Lacey, Lacey uh, calling Dashmiel and saying, "Hey, your crazy guy you hired said he's going to hurt me," and Dashmiel is like, "Ah, I said no violence when I asked him uh-huh. to for- forcibly get things from you." <laughs> yeah. So I had a real big problem with this because <laughs> in the book, I buy when Dashmiel is kind of like pleads ignorance. But the way that it would have been fine if all we saw of Dashmill was like him by the car and him making the call. But then you get that really ominous scene in the first episode. And it almost like reminded me of like Twin Peaks, the return where like he's sitting in the motel and he's talking to Jim. And it's the first time we actually see Dooley when he's in the car and he's just kind of sitting there like, yeah, I'll take care of it. (laughs) But like the way that Dashmill is talking to him, there is no fucking way that he doesn't know that this is going to lead to like some you, fucking Do you know what I think violence. it is, though? At least for the, the show, is I think that he, he's been so angry with Lisi that in the back of his mind, he was thinking, well, maybe there will be a little violence, but now he's regretting it. Yeah. yeah. That's where yeah. I am with that. At least, at least in the show. I can't remember exactly how it goes down in the, in the novel. I also yeah. think, like, watching the show, I do think it's clear that he that is what he's intending, and maybe yeah. he's just telling himself that's not what he exactly. wants. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. also think in the book, he is a couple of different professors. You know, right. she talks about, like, the inconks. Um, and so I think when it's more people, it's easier to kind of, um, like, distill that intention, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Whereas I feel like this one part, when it's everybody, all of the stuff, I'm sorry, I'm drifting off. But yeah, when it's just one person, it I feel like it feels much more yeah, pointed. I, yeah, I, I think in the book it was Professor Dash and, and Professor Meal. And Meal, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Meal. D- Dash to Meal. Dash to Meal. Think about that. Yeah. There's something oh, I, there. I love that line. So, I love that movie. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to talk weird. about that whole library scene later. Uh, it's like in tweet, yeah. So, yeah, so then we move on to uh, Darla talking to the doctor, and we learn here that Hollyhocks is a game Amanda and her and Lisi played as children, so that's sort of the relation there. So memory also factors in uh, to this strange Booyah Moon place that we'll learn a teensy bit more about later. Um, And then we do the first of many flashbacks here. We kind of see the... um, the beginnings of the Scott and uh, Lisi relationship here. Not the beginnings necessarily, but we see him after he sells his first book. We uh, And then, you know, we saw um, in the last episode their wedding. So we're in these early moments. This is when Lisi is still a restaurant hostess. Something Dashmiel holds over her head, which uh, in a sense of you don't fully appreciate his genius because you were just a restaurant uh, hostess, which is such a bizarre thing to say to someone. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, so basically we flash back to this uh, moment in their relationship where he sold his book, and then he goes out and he says he's going to meet up with her, but instead he goes out and parties with the boys because uh, the boys are back in town. And uh, <laughs> he gets drunk with a guy named Mort Tolliver, which struck me that it had to be somebody in the King universe, but I didn't Google it yet. Um, it just struck me as like such a uh, King's Dominion name. Um, but 
Uh, but he's she's furious because he's gone. Uh, he left her home alone. She got this horrible call from Darla where Darla guilted her about Amanda. And when he gets home, she basically, you know, screams at him. And his response is to say, I can fix this. And then he goes, punches a window, tears up his arm on the glass, comes home and is basically like, I did this for you. Which to me just seems like really horrible yeah. Uh, abusive dating relationship. <laughs> yeah, behavior. right. Yeah, it's a warning sign right there. Hashtag Coldplay. But uh, and they at least yeah. she at least wonders, did I am I uh, am I living with a psychopath? But then the next morning she sees that he has healed somewhat. Well, he tells her he doesn't want to go to the hospital, and then the next morning he's cooking eggs and he's he's feeling good, uh, and his wounds are healing nicely. But she did have an experience where she woke up in the night and he was gone. Something he tells her did not happen. So lots of lies, lots of deception, lots, lots of, of uh, self-harm in service yeah. to saving a relationship. Well, a lazy story. <laughs> yeah, God. Well, I, I will say the uh, uh, lies is in uh, the, the lies. Line. Yeah, okay, I get it. No, Big um, little lies story. <laughs> nice, David E. Kelly's lazy story. Um, but uh, one thing, lies we tell. As I mentioned, <laughs> it does pivot into the past for Scott here. Yes. you get to see uh, my boy Michael Pitt. Uh, Wait a minute. That's what? Michael I Pitt? If that was Michael, Michael Pitt. Pitt. I it's knew Michael it. Pitt. Oh, yeah. I did not even recognize yeah. it. So not only do I get wow. Dave DeHaan in this show, but I get Michael Pitt. So I'm fucking happy. I here. love Michael, Michael Pitt. Pitt. I, I cannot I believe I didn't recognize him. I huh? thought so. And I was trying to IMDb him and he's not on the, he's on the build, he wasn't huh? on the thing. Yeah, yeah wow. he's in the credits. Cause I, cause uh, oh, Sammy had weird. pointed out and sh- and I was like, no way. And cause he, you know, he actually looks more like Kurt Cobain here than he did in the last days. But, uh, Oh, uh, but yeah. So <laughs> I, and then Uh-oh. I looked at the credits and Michael Pitt's in there. So that, that is, yeah. that, that is a uh, well, Papa, Papa Landon. Uh, I'm glad you decided himself. to stick around and didn't quit halfway through the production. That's pretty nice. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, hey, we're only two episodes in, so he, could, he has every <laughs> he chance to quit It still. could be somebody else playing the role <laughs> in episodes three and four. That would yeah. be so yeah. funny. Oh, so, so this flashback is weird. Um, essentially, we see baby Scott sitting at a table with his older brother, um, and uh, Papa Pitt is sitting and watching televangelism on TV and muttering all these strange things and saying things like, uh, I know you're going to leave me, go to Booyah Moon or whatever you call it. And then mm-hmm. he's meanwhile just kind of casually cutting his arm open. Yeah. Um, mm. So I would say that if I weren't familiar with the book, this would be an incredibly <laughs> jarring scene for me, uh, as would him smashing his hand and bleeding everywhere for her. But I guess the implication is that self-harm is something that runs in the family. Um and uh, that there is a means for the Landon family to heal themselves quicker than others. So, but he does tell Lisi when she asks him about it that what he's done is for both letting out the bad and saying sorry. So that's mm-hmm. his uh, justification for it. Um, and in the midst of all of this, after he's cut himself, he says, "Let's get married." So, wild night Aww. at the Landon household, just as he planned earlier that night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, it, all he had to do is just come back and take her out to like Olive Garden or something like that, and it just would have—they could have easily gotten married without having to deal with any of this shit. But yeah, I will uh, say I struggle with this Olive part Garden. of the story for a lot of reasons. It just seems like uh, maybe he, just him coming home drunk one night, perhaps isn't enough to justify the blood bull. Um, I think that if he just said I'm sorry and you know took her out uh, to uh, hang out, maybe he didn't have to self mutilate. 
Yeah, um, I think I, I he keep... has some issues. <laughs> well, I keep I don't wondering, know if, like, if maybe that's a maybe that's a hot take. Maybe, well, you know. So I keep wondering about the metaphorical like implications of this, right? So like, if we're to believe that, you know, Scott and Lisi are stand-ins for you know King and Tabby. I've just really been thinking about like what is King trying to say with the idea of like the self mutilation and the way that you know him getting the bad bull or the you know the bad gunky out uh, through the blood bull like if what does that mean right and I and I started wondering like does King think that like him pouring himself into the stories like all his bad gunky in the stories is his way of like uh, finding some sort of reconciliation. I, I don't know. I'm just like, I'm still wrestling with it as I'm reading the book, but there's something there and it's clearly coming from a personal, uh, well of his, you know, maybe it has to do with his own, you know, personal addictions in the past. Maybe I should save all this for the book episode as opposed to the two episodes we're talking about of, of the, the show, but it's something that I've been really thinking about and it's been bothering me because I, I mean, look, there are no answers, obviously. It's all, you know, just what we I, You know, infer, I think but. it could be, there could be some alcohol standing for the, the quote-unquote, like the blood bull or whatever. Um, yeah. Or, it, and honestly, though, it could merely just be a plot device. Yeah. 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 You know, and, yeah, and, then, like, and then, everything, and that's, and that's informed by the relationship. I feel like, we'll talk about the characters later on. There's, some, there's certain lines I want to discuss. Yeah. That feel like they were probably said either by King or by Tabitha King and, and their past. But, uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, it's... Let's give him a call. What are we talking about? He, <laughs> well, because he's a blower. He, he likes the podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me, d, let me DM him right now. Well, there's a point in the book, and it, it, he, has, he hasn't gotten to this, the show yet, but he, you know, Scott basically insinuates that you know, these stories are, they come from you know, these experiences that he sees you know, when he crosses over, right? And like yeah. all the, I, I think that's supposed to be like you know, his own trauma kind of instilling in whatever stories he's able to put to page. So I don't know. There's a lot to unpack there, especially when you tie it to his own, you know, what he's bringing to the table, you know, from his own personal landscape. But um, I don't know stuff I've been chewing on and something that has definitely been staying with me as I, I am still seeing Clive Owen as King, even though I'm trying not to, but uh, (laughs) Uh, Jen, what were you going to say? Yeah, I think I have some larger thoughts about like what the blood bull is and how that kind of relates to the story in its entirety that kind of, clicked into place with this watch of the show and I don't know if now is really the time to get into it but I do think like when I look at the show as a whole and the story as a whole I feel like it is ultimately about healing and I Mm -hmm. feel like we start at a place where this is a really um, negative coping mechanism you know and Mm -hmm. I think the the cutting and the self-harm is what really hooked me into the story on the second reread. And it's partly because at this time in my life, like it's been something that I've been, that I, I occasionally do, you know? And so I was watching this and I was, I was struck by the reasons that they are, that the various people in the show are harming themselves and they feel very authentic. Like there's, there's a, a feeling of like you have to pay in some way and just feeling bad is not enough to pay. So you have to like cause physical pain that I thought I found really authentic. Like I have never been like, I've that's a kind of a private thing. Like I've never really shared that. Like here it is. I, I hurt myself for you, mm-hmm. but I feel like there's also this element of like self-destruction that you could see with his drinking. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That when you feel bad, like that is a way to make yourself feel worse or to kind of, take it away you know and I also feel like Mm -hmm. the letting letting it out is oh it's like a release and like there's there is kind of a feeling of release in 
in that experience of pain. And one of the things like, like my therapist is like, well, hold an ice cube in your hand because it's still that pain, but it's not damaging, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was watching this and I was thinking, I I just have a lot of complicated thoughts about what this says about mental health. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I'm still kind of working through it. Um, But I, you know, like when I was watching Sharp Objects, I really had to stop watching that show because it was just too much ideation and it was like giving me these really negative ideas. And I didn't feel like that when I was watching this. I, mm-hmm. I feel like it has more story. It, it's tapped into the story more. I don't know. Well, I think that's a good question we can revisit throughout these recaps is what it does say about mental health and about self-harm and things like that. Um, yeah. Because then we do see, you know, we do also see that, um, you know, when Scott when he does disappear in the night, we see that he does end up in this Booyah Moon place, the same place we saw Amanda, and we see him dip his arm that is damaged into the water. So it is sort of this confirmation that the healing, the water itself is what heals, but we do also understand that this is still a dangerous place. Um, So we're slowly learning more and more. Um, In terms of the modern day action, we return, and uh, the bull hunt continues with... uh, um, basically, uh, Lisi calls her doctor and says, mm-hmm. oh, uh, Scott signed news. a bunch of, uh, <laughs> well, he says, give me the news. Then he says, uh, Scott signed a bunch of books for you. Is there a note in any of them? It turns out there is, it points to a cedar box. Um, and, uh, it's the fourth clue, the bull and the doctor goes, ha ha, remarkable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which made me laugh. Um, and then, uh, but and then we spend a lot of time with Jim Dooley in this episode. Oof. He, uh, yeah, he kind of goes to the apartment where or the house where Scott and Lisa used to live. He shows up. He harasses the man who lives there. Uh, says he has t- little TVs in his eyes, which is just a very funny thing. Um, and it's also very funny to like say, "Oh, hey, he's a famous author," and to reply to that by going, "I don't read books. I watch TV." <laughs> That's yeah, just such a weird line of dialogue. <laughs> it is. I, I was gonna say, like, I even when we watched it, uh, I was like, "Who says that?" Like, I know. I mean, <laughs> so then we see uh, him drive to Lisi's place, uh, and so he and we found out at the end of the last episode he has her address. So he's he's very dangerous. He's there, and then uh, when Lisi gets home, she finds a dead bird in the mailbox and a letter on the door. Uh, and the letter on the door says, "You are a bad woman. I would like to put you in the microwave." And we realize he put the bird in the microwave um and the cops since uh the landon family is a big deal around these parts they're very happy to uh, offer her assistance in the form of han solo from yes. the fast and furious franchise Absolutely. who plays uh one of the cops there very, oh, justo Lord, and i go. very very happy to see our good boy han in the Lisi story extended universe so i'm sung kang sung kang great actor um so so what's up mike so there are some weird things here. One, the so in the book, like Darla's not really involved in this situation uh, mm-hmm. with the cops yeah. and all, and she's not really called to the house. And like the fact that she like even knows Dooley at this point is pretty astounding because that's just not in the books. Like Lisi really does keep to herself about this, uh, so much so that like um, she actually tries to keep the the cops at arm's length. And that's mm-hmm. so I think there's like a distinct change here. Um, you know what with is that. Mike? You know, reminds me of eleven twenty two sixty three when they yeah. added that character. Because mm-hmm. so much of eleven twenty two sixty three is inside yes. of his head, yep, and so much of of Lisi's story is inter- interior monologue. Yeah. yeah, so I think you have to have more people to bounce off of to talk about whatever's happening, whether it's the cops or whether it's her sister. 
Yeah. Because yeah. I, I, well, I, as little as I remember, I do remember most of it is just her by herself, it feels like, in the book. But yeah. It is. It is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which, I mean, obviously would be uh, unadaptable in many ways. Yeah. I mean, they'd really have to lean on the past in that sense, which honestly, the book does. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a they huge. They just have to get Mike Flanagan to do it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. That's true. But the one, other, the other takeaway I, I had was, these are supposed to be Castle Rock, you know, PD. Yeah, and, it's and, um, Clutterbug. Yeah, and so like, the fact that we, but I think they clearly the, it, have it, a main. It's Richards in the in the show though. It's not Clutterbug. Yeah, it's not. It's Clutterbug not. In the yeah, show. and yeah. and then my heart. But then know. like they clearly have a main accents, and at one point like Scott's even wearing like a main shirt. So it's set in Maine clearly, but like. It's kind of weird that they don't really put the Castle Rock name anywhere. Like, I even looked at the badge and the idea, and I just didn't see anything Castle Rock related. So, I don't and, know they, and they name, we'll talk about it later, but they name at least five cities that are around that area yeah. that are in Stephen King books, which is strange. So, yeah. they should have got Ray McKinnon to reprise his role as Norris Ridgewick. Love oh, that would Ray be McKinnon. Cool. Yeah. Love I mean, him. is this Castle Rock season three? Is, this <laughs> J. J. is that, it is, is that the twist? Yeah. What a twist. Oh, Lord. I don't know. I think I'm glad that they combined the sisters for the simple fact yeah. that I don't have to work hear the name Cantata. Cantata. <laughs> I know. As, Cantata. I, I will, so I wanted to ask, though, and this isn't really too much of a spoiler of the book, but Randall, how happy are you uh, with the animal switch? Uh, in the much, mailbox? much happier. Uh, okay. yeah. I'm, I am. I would much rather a bird die than a good, sweet kitty. Yeah. That bird so. was also extraordinarily sweet. Yeah, but birds. Or it was the Dark Man. I know that's Damn, what I was Jen, thinking. I have I have a great bit later on for Kingston. Oh, I was going to say because because the episode actually the too. second episode opens with yep. with the close up of the bird. I said, oh, yeah. is Randall is this uh, uh, Randall Flag? Is Randall going to get his flag trying to get his hands on the old manuscripts too? I thought it was really I mean, cool. I'll I tell it, you. <laughs> Yeah, you've seen all of it. So, um, you know, Jamie episode Sheridan six. pops up in episode six and, you know, <laughs> miss me. Uh, but uh, hope, you guess, hope you guess my name, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Um, but yeah, so what I, I, I wanted to mention the fact that, like, the way that they uh, execute the way that, that, that uh, Jim kills the bird is kind of clever. Because, you know, it's, it's very, it's all off screen. And even when they're showing him, like, walking up to the house, you don't really see what he's holding. I, I don't know. I just thought it was really the yeah. direction there was really, really awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and she really just sticks eerie. her hand in and it's bloody. Yeah. It's yeah. Like that it's like another kind of blood bull, you know? Mm. Yeah. yeah. I love yeah. that. So the episode ends with uh, Lisey or yeah, Lisey walking by her pool and seeing in the reflection, the Booyah moon. And it seems as if she is repressing memories of this mysterious place that we have gotten a few glimpses of this episode. Um, and we also get uh, reiterations of Scott telling her that she knows like, and then I think Amanda says it to her too, that she, Lisey knows yeah. what it is that they're discussing, but Lisey refuses to acknowledge it. Um, and, uh, and, and, we hear cries of sort of the distant monster. We go back to Booyah Moon. We see Amanda there. And Amanda says, I don't like this place. I don't want to be here. And that's when we see the conjuring nun or bride uh, there who oh, says, bride. <laughs> bride, good to see you. Uh, so, <laughs> and who says, I need to think about why I killed them. So lots of stuff going on. And then we end with this sort of like uh, very Rob Zombie-esque uh, quick shot of a monster's face, like a raw kind of thing. And then yeah, it yeah. ends. And it I'm says, like, fuck. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. it's Richard Brake. Uh, <laughs> so, Richard Brake is yeah. the monster. <laughs> just sitting there, like, you know, talking to it. It's all uh, black and white. Uh, a little Lisey. So, 
at the end of these at these two episodes, I have three questions that I think are lingering for me. And one is, mm. when did Scott die? Uh, how much does Lisi know about this other world? And mm. why is Amanda there? Mm-hmm. Like, because it seems as if Scott always made the decision to go there. And when he would go there, it was a place of healing. Uh, why is Amanda in this semi-catatonic state? And why is she there and scared and not happy there? So um, I think that those are questions that I think linger at the end of these two episodes and are ones for us to consider as we move forward. Well, same like Lisi time, same Lisi channel on Apple Plus. <laughs> Apple Plus. Well, uh, on that note, um, unless we have anything else to say on that front, I think it's time to move on to Bulls and Ghouls. She won't let them go. I'll get those papers for you. Here in Bulls and Ghouls, the classic uh, uh, entry in, in, yeah. <laughs> um, we discussed the characters and I think there's a lot to discuss here. Um, where did we want to start? How do we, is this how you pictured Lisi reading the book? Is Julianne Moore, uh, delivering? King loves this character and it shows it mm-hmm. on the page. She laughs at her own witticisms and her own insights. And I think that more right off the bat plays her as a really strong character for me it seemed like a pretty seamless transition from you know page to screen i have some other casting alternatives uh, i'll say um but lisi wasn't one of them for me i thought julianne moore is perfect casting but yeah what about the rest of you i, I think I, she's fantastic yeah i just wrote fantastic in my notes yeah I, I wasn't really picturing anyone when i was reading and that might have been why i had a hard time hooking into the story the first time i read it mm. but i mean she's just she's just amazing i think she's a fantastic actress and i think she brings the weight that you need to this story yeah i think think she's also an executive producer on this too so i feel like she's probably had a lot of the uh background information on that too and what she wanted the show to be and this is not how i pictured her i i I don't want to say i pictured you know scott and lisa as kind of more uh Normcore? Uh, Normcore. It's pr- pr- like, I pictured, I think I pictured like Scott as like Paul Giamatti or something like that. Like, <laughs> oh I my God. As, Are you no, kidding I'm saying, me? <laughs> I didn't picture him as like the hunk of the century, you know, Clive Owen. I saw I her as a uh, normal guy. You know? I saw her as Kathy Bates when I first read it. Yeah, oh, that's really? Awesome. really? Honestly, I, if, if I was, if I had cast this, it probably would, uh, listen, Julian Moore is doing great in this iteration of Lisey's story. It would have been actually Joan Allen would have been closer to, to mm. my mind, and then Paul mm. Giamatti or something like that, or somebody. Um, Giamatti uh, could never get Joan. Or, listen, yeah. it's Hollywood, man. You know that's, that's how it works. Yeah. You know, you've, seen, uh, uh... you've seen every CBS sitcom. I mean, let's be honest. Shot me right in the fucking chest. Yeah. Um, but, um, <laughs> did you use the shovel? Did you use um, your goddamn, your goddamn motherfuckers love, are gonna come? Love. They're gonna shoot me. You know, he's had such an incredible career yeah, that all goes back to 25 years ago in private parts. I know. It always does. Um, Pig vomit. Um, no, but I do, I do love your Mike, I don't want to steal your, your excellent comp, though, because I think you said that she was, she was cast based on her pharmacy her scene panic from Magnolia. Magnolia, right? Yeah. That, yes. I, I definitely got some vibes from that in certain yeah. episodes where she's trying to really release, you know. Which yeah. Is, we've all been there where we're like, just, we want to scream, but it's not polite to do that it's not polite to let your emotions out even though she's all alone in this giant field she still feels she can't do it i think that's a great job of conveying you know her mental state without having to have a some 
two-page narration that's mm-hmm. like a voiceover or something like that like that's all yeah, you she's always see. been you good at being sort of like a tea kettle like in a cartoon that's bouncing because it's about to you know it like wants the steam to be released yeah. so bad yeah. uh she's always been very good at that sort of um that sort of restrained anguish you know uh and then when it does come out it's it's quite cathartic as we see in the pharmacy scene from magnolia um i so, do yeah. think that I, I do think there's some points where she kind of does overdoes it a little bit like it's it's a little too histrionic at, at at points, just but but I think it's just because you ha- you kind of have to, because there's just so much like rage and trauma and implied yeah. history of like what's there. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some points where I'm like, eh, I've had some pretty bad days, and I don't I don't know if I'm like you know. But th- I would say the same uh, thing with Dane Dynamic yeah. points. I, I don't know. There's some points where I'm just like, eh, it's a little much. But I think a lot of it is just that you have to kind of embellish like stuff that you can't really convey from the pages but um mm-hmm. i, I do know. love her it i do love her an institution you know her husband got shot in front of her and is dead you know i, I don't know I'm gonna give yeah, her yeah it's mostly like stuff in the pool when she's it, it's just like ah uh, whatever i don't have to go in <laughs> she's <laughs> swimming in that dirty pool <laughs> like, i was wondering about how those flowers worked i was like where is that dirt going i don't know what's <laughs> going on with that pool it, it looks it's like a fucking pretty. like postmodern awesome pool that looks heated and yet it has like weeds and shit grown in it. I don't, I don't understand what's going on with that pool. I don't know, but I want it in my backyard. I do too. I, I it's amazing. Well, the two parts that I really loved were um, one when she's driving and she starts beating her head against I the love window, that. you know, yeah. and then yeah. the seatbelt part where she's like, because mm-hmm. I have done both of those things. And I was like, yes, it's like you just can't get it out, but it's it's like bubbling underneath. And I think like that's the bad gunky to use i guess ah. maybe parlance from later you know it's yeah i don't oh, want to a question um i guess this is the time that we can t- talk about the characters obviously mm-hmm. the, the classic category of bulls and ghouls that line when tabby and scar are discussing kind of the dangers of fans and she I love says, that you said tabby lacy <laughs> No, no, oh, you're right. Freudian oh, slip over here. Is this Tabby's uh, story? Yeah. Tabby's tale. Oh. Tabby's, Tabby's tales. Though <laughs> um, when Lisi says, most of them love you, but it only takes one that doesn't, don't you think that Tabby probably did say it to King at one point? Yeah. Yeah. Like, that, that kind of thing does feel ripped from a, a, the possi- a, a possible scenario in their own relationship. That, that are, does there, ring true. There are a few parts of that I was like pulling that out where, especially when he was just like, you know, uh, you know, everyone. There are a lot of people who love me for my stories, but you love me yeah, enough yeah, to tell definitely. me to brush my teeth, or you know that I bite my nails like a rat and stuff. And I was like, okay, that's a little. That's specific. Like that comes from yeah. a personal place, mm-hmm. and I love I that. I, yeah. Um, I imagine you, you that you love me when I was as attractive as I am right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, Jesus Christ. I I don't remember her saying smuck once uh, mm-hmm. in this in these two episodes, nope. which just no. has me think that uh, Julianne Moore pulled her EP status to say Stephen. Yeah. I love the book. I'm not saying smuck in any oh, variation. Yeah. We will use and baby I would love like to a say few times. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we'll say yeah. baby love, but no smucking or smucks. Well, there is a sequence when Dan DeHaan's character is uh, microwaving one of his pizzas and he pulls out Smuckers. Um, <laughs> ah. Puts jelly on the pizza. Yeah, puts jelly on the pizza, yeah. Although this guy's a bit this guy's a, a bit off. Freak. He's a little yeah, off. Yeah, let's just say he's a little left of the dial. Um, well, let's yeah. talk about him since we brought him up. I think this is easily probably the most interesting transition. Mm-hmm. Um, Dooley on the page is not nearly as developed as he is in these just two episodes. Dooley on the page is sort of enigmatic in the sense that um, he, you know, he doesn't have that same connection to Scott that he does in the TV series. He seems more just kind of like a run-of-the-mill lunatic. Yeah, um, who, the great thing about you know TV shows is that you can enhance everything. 
You can yeah. expand upon everything. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it's meant to be short story or something, but obviously it works here because Dahan is just the marvelous. <laughs> he's the marvelous and he's the terrifying. Uh, he's he, a, yeah. he's definitely like the Owen Teague of this. Yeah. I, I think of where you know he's flexing some muscles that I'm a little surprised that Dahan's doing. You know, I, I'm I've been in the mm-hmm. the the Dahan corner. You uh, have. You've talked about him for long as long as I've known you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I called teased. him. I just remember seeing Chronicle and being like, well, there's the next DiCaprio. And then I was a yep. uh, big Durong. Um, <laughs> you saw the, 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 the not, not so quite amazing Spider-Man 2. And you said, yeah, oh. well, that kind of put the kibosh on things. But he had a good little run there because, like, you know, the place behind the pines, uh, beyond the pines that, that he was great in. But I, I don't know. He uh, Maybe it's too early to tell because we're only two episodes in. At least I am. Uh, but this could be a comeback of sorts. Well, I hear that 000 is awesome. Yeah. yeah, he's uh, working. And he's, he's a big part of that show on Amazon Prime. Yeah, no but he plug. rules here. And, and I, I love how much <laughs> character they sort of derive out of, like, how much King and Dane and, and Pablo, like, they all really, really allow this character to transcend just sort of, like, boilerplate villainy. I mean, Dooley's mm-hmm. a nasty, nasty motherfucker in the book, but he's he's sort of a cipher. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't, like, the language that, um, that is written for Jim in the show is pulled from the book, like that sort of folksy, plain-spoken kind of dialogue. But here we see um, it's delivered with such menace, whereas I think the vision that King probably had in the book was that there was like a joviality to him that was mm-hmm. uh, that belied sort of, you know, how dark he really was. And we hear that, but it's what's interesting about DeHaan's performance is that uh, even though he speaks that way, he's so like deadened, uh, yeah. Like he's so dead inside that it, it he can't really animate. And I think the two yeah. things that they've really done with that character is they've shown that he is a an obsessive fan, like um, very much someone who puts all of his stock and worth into a single personality and has in the process, I think, you know, drained some of his own humanity because he uh, adheres so closely to this, um, you know, singular figure who he has no, who he only has a parasocial relationship to. Um, and we see his apartment and is covered in posters and books and, and cardboard cutouts of Scott that he takes selfies with. Um, and it's clear that his, his admiration isn't really rooted in any kind of love but rather like worship you know mm-hmm. and um and that's a lot more dangerous than love i think a lot of you know if you just want to compare it to religion a lot of people who uh you know worship a god uh, don't necessarily love their god or is at least the vibe that you get when you speak to them and then um and then the other thing is that they've sort of made him a bit of an incel in this mm-hmm. uh yes. he this is something that's not in the book is the concept that he is very deeply misogynistic uh, in, I mean, you know, I think that's perhaps implied in the book, but here he asks, you know, Dashmiel, are you married? And when he says yes, he just says, be careful. And then later mm-hmm. when he talks to the man uh, in Scott's old apartment or old house, he says, uh, you know, are you married? And he says, mm-hmm. no. And then he goes, good, stay single, um, which is a weird thing to say. But I think, sure. uh, you know, and then he calls uh, Lisi Yoko at one point. Um, I can't remember times, if that's yeah. in the book. Yeah. And um, but it's interesting because I think that those are, you know, obviously timely uh, things to weave into that character. But they're also ones that I think work really well. Um, yeah. So, yeah. What other responses do you guys have to this performance? Just, I, just go for it. Yeah, no, you go for it. I think I texted a total creep. I mean, this is just <laughs> this guy's as, a real as jerk. Goes you can do it. The guy's it's far be it for me to judge, but the guy's a real <laughs> jerk. Um, I'll steal this. I don't know if Flieger's going to be on any other 
yeah, he's gonna be, be on the next, next one. one. Is he on the, okay? He's got a really good uh, take on what he does for his actions. So I'll, I'll I'll definitely let him yeah. talk about that. But I noticed he doesn't blink a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that was a specific choice. Just a really dark read. I'm, I'm captivated by everything he's doing up there on the screen. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's not. It's hard to really talk about too much because he is playing it so dead inside, trying to be, you know, kind of almost folksy in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. With his keeps, you know, these these nuggets of wisdom he keeps trying to drop. You know, <laughs> but like, that's what's interesting about the character is that he's just he's just there and he's just his presence and the presence is enough. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it helps because he's he's a perfect chess piece for Lorraine, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, he he absolutely fits with the tone of the show. Like you're mm. saying, he is a presence. Like there is a dread to him that matches the sort of dread of the show. And like, I don't know if I, I imagine Dehane and Lorraine like had a, a, a shitload of conversations together because you get the sense that Dehane knows that there are going to be a lot of long shots. That he knows there are going to be a, a lot of like. Uh, like stoic portraits at points that are just very not slowed down per se, but just very like um, uh, meditative, like almost like uh, halcyonic in a way, um, like tranquil. And I think that that sort of tranquility fuels a lot of the sort of terror that he has where he's just this ball of like, he just seems like a bomb that's about to go off at any moment. And, but he just exists in this one moment, like this confined sense of, dead energy and yeah. i don't know it just really matches the tone of the show in, in a way that you know you could really just made this villain seem so pedantic and, and, and mm-hmm. lame yeah to me i i think i compared some to somebody else i I can't remember where i said it but he's like a pixie song you know it's like quiet mm-hmm. quiet quiet loud because then you see those yeah. scenes of him dancing in his apartment and he's like yeah. wailing and you know and and throwing his arms up in the air and everything and but there's also this like wry humor to him too uh because you know the way that he toys with the librarian it's not just menace he's also joking with her mm-hmm. and like uh the tvs and the eyes that he jokes about with with the uh man at the door it's like he's he's making fun but it comes out in such a creepy way that it's really unsettling and then um and i also just want to add that that jacket he's wearing is doing a lot of heavy work in mm-hmm. terms of uh conveying his how uncomfortable he seems and dark he seems in this world that is such the ugliest jacket i've ever seen yeah. uh jen were you gonna say something Yeah, like in the book, he comes across as like a Southern gentleman, you know, and Mm -hmm. very like kind of a lot more like personality to him. And I really I I think like I think as King has written about Holly Gibney, he's kind of figured out who she is and kind of solidified that character. And I kind of see that now with the fact that he was able to adapt this script it's almost like refining it and figuring Mm -hmm. out what about him works and what doesn't because yeah he does lean into the incel thing whereas that's definitely implied in the book and I picked up a lot of that in his actions Um, but I think here it's much more intentional and it seems more directed at Lisi um, as opposed to just kind of being an agent of Dash Meal whereas it's what I kind of see in the book I will say I wish that he would enunciate a little bit more that is my (laughs) one yeah Um, and every time I watch an episode and I type any kind of notes, I keep singing da 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 Jim Dooley, and then I want to watch Friday the Thirteenth. Well, again. I keep thinking about the great song Jim Dandy, because that's mm. what he tells her to to refer to him as, and uh, yeah. Jim Dandy on the Days to Confuse soundtrack. Yeah. He calls himself oh, Zach right. McCool in the book. 
I wonder why yeah, he changed does. that. Yeah, yeah Jim Danny's better. I agree. It makes yeah. more sense. Doesn't make, it makes a little more sense too with the, with the first. It name. Feels like he's picked up some notes along the way. Like he read some reviews of Lacey's story. Yeah, I think he made some smart edits. Was it Zach? What? <laughs> Zach. Wait. Yeah. No, what, seriously, uh, what was his, his name? Zach McCool. Zach McCool. Zach he's a real cool cat, you know? Yeah, I think Jim Dandy's better. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Marginally. Let's <laughs> talk about uh, Clive Owen, the handsomest author that's ever lived. Confirmed, okay, you right? guys must confirmed? think he is way hotter than I do, which is <laughs> I don't a know. shock because it's normally he's a hunk. me. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> this guy's a hunk. I, need I, him, I guess he does wear some sweaters. I don't know. He does. <laughs> No spoilers. Just episode seven. It's not Skarsgård, but he's he's. That's true. Well, we can't all be Skarsgård, right? We can't be a card from Randall Flagg himself. By the end of these recaps, we will convince you Clive Owen is hot. All right, that's a bet. I'll take that bet. If you if you don't see it now, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, hey, I I'm not saying that like I would kick him out of bed. I just am not like ready. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I wasn't going to suggest that. I'm just saying, I, I understand right next to Sung Kang, my boy from Fast Oh, and he's so hot. <laughs> um, so uh, thoughts on, on Clive Owen's Scott Landon, Mike? I think he's the weakest link. I got, yeah, I got to say, I agree, I'm, a huge, I'm a huge so, fan of Clive Owen, and yes. I wanted a renaissance from him, but doesn't fit in this show. He's too English for this. Like, couldn't they have gotten like Campbell Scott or something? Like, he would have been oh, so much more. Like, I, I, just really don't, I just don't buy him here. I, I think that he's... I think all, a lot of it also is just that I, just, I think Scott Landon's a really like oh god I hate using this fucking word but like a problematic character so like I just don't really like him that much but like I just don't buy Clive Owen here and I, I, and I don't know if their chemistry is really winning me over yet. You know? Why do you well, think you he's a realize, problematic character? Uh, yeah, ahead, uh, there's a lot of reasons why I think I think a lot of the things that we just already alluded to with just like the the blood bowl and everything, but mm, yeah. um, I, th- I think the kind of life that he impresses upon me sees a little uh, you know troubling but um yeah. I, I, I would tell her not to date him yeah right <laughs> exactly i think it's a like prime a example of Ron. it's a prime example of i can change them you know what i mean I'm yes so oh yeah which is know. a story i know very well and it usually yeah, doesn't know, work out <laughs> so i tells all time but yeah I, <laughs> yep. give me give me campbell scott and i think he would have been great but you know campbell even, scott even if he still smashed his hand through a, a glass did he really john i didn't know that he did yeah. Wait, what did he read? He re- he read The Shining. Like oh, he reads wow. the audiobook of The Shining. Love him. Yeah, it's good. Love so him. he's be, he's in the King of Earth. You know? It'd be funny That's if true. you were just like, well, he just read The Shining one time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. He, he, yeah, he, really he, enjoyed he's, it. he likes it. <laughs> his there's, dad, a photo, there, he's a, there's a photo of him on the set of Singles, and he's like reading <laughs> sing, The Shining. <laughs> his dad was on the set of Firestarter, and he said, "We you, you work with Stephen King? I just read The Shining." <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh, something about this. I, what, I was tr- it was racking my brain, but I, f- I totally forgot that Julianne Moore and Clive Owen were in Children of Men together. Mm, yeah, that's true. I've still not seen that. I've heard it's great. Oh, oh man. It's Excellent. Great. Excellent movie. Um, uh, very happy as well. Just as happy as Lisey's story. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, too, because I, I think one of the big changes, which is something I think I struggled with in my first watch, but on my second watch I got over it a little bit, is that, um, you know, we're flashing back a long time like when we're seeing them when she's a hostess and he's an author they're supposed to be like in their early 20s yeah. and there's no aged in 30 years so it's easier for her i know That's true. so and i the thing is like i don't begrudge the idea that lorraine just didn't make any efforts to de-age them because a no, we all know digital de-aging usually doesn't work uh the irishman <laughs> um and it then chapter two it chapter two we know it usually doesn't work and i wouldn't want what if it was just different actors? It'd be so bad. I know, that'd be, <laughs> what if it was just Finn Wolfhard, but still Julianne Moore? He plays both hey, characters. I got my, 
hey, I got $2,500 for my first book. <laughs> so, yeah, I, so I, I'd say, though, that in those flashbacks, like, like I can see Julian where she's acting younger. Like, she's, mm-hmm, she, mm-hmm. Uh, she understands the age, and I think she can play it a little bit better. Like, certain line deliveries. Like, because like there's that whole section where they're just like, where, like, they're like, families suck, you know? Yeah, and they're talking, yeah. like, people in their early 20s. She can sell that. He mm-hmm. cannot. He He's cannot. He's still doing like 50 years old. Yeah. yeah. Like he just never doesn't resonate as the very, um, I don't know, uh, put together English gentleman that he is. Um, it's it's hard for me to buy him as a young man. It's like and, De Niro you know. coming out of the convenience store and the Irishman just like <laughs> kicking the guy. He's oh, like God. 90 years old. Looking, you know. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's. I think that's a place where I struggle with uh, Scott in those scenes. And, um, and also... I don't know. It's like I feel like Scott is a very emotive character. Uh, he's he's you yeah. know especially as the series goes on, and that's not never really been the my thing with Clive Owen. I think he's not a character I would rely on in heavily dramatic roles. I think he's got great screen presence, and um, he's yes, very stoic. Yeah, like I mean, I've seen clips of him in it, and I know it's like. I know that's like a perfect role for him. And I think that he plays, he has a certain heaviness about him and a certain, um, I don't know, like air of, uh, of, um, weight to him. And I feel like that's not necessarily what this character calls for. He's we, a, we need a Giamatti. He's a bad, <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> you know? Wait, wait, we'd no. love to see Giamatti playing a 21 year old. Yeah. It's a really bad, like, they just put a fucking wig huge wig. Well, that, that's actually, so I wanted to ask about that. Do you feel, and maybe it's just because, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with my hair and stuff, but don't you feel that, like, they put on some sort of hair piece with Clive Owen in the younger scenes as opposed to, like, say, when he's... It looks the, darker. So it's it looks yeah. darker and it looks fuller. And then when you go when he's, you know, when they're breaking ground at the the, the library, it seems like he has, like, thinner hair. I, I, I don't know thinner. if it's like a normal human being, is what you're saying? Yeah, well, yeah, I know it looks like a normal human being. I just was wondering, you know... Made me realize, like, wow, you know, Clive Owen's getting a little old. And then when he goes back to the older scenes, I was like, wow, he looks a little bit younger here. So I, I, I do think they did, maybe did some sort of, maybe it's just lighting. I don't know. But um, what if uh, thinner, if the curse was not to get thin, like skinny, but just your hair would just, thin just, out? Just, just, just a hair. little bit. Well, you know, wouldn't be, wouldn't be as scary. That would be Mike's Mike worry. Kill somebody yeah. with, a, with a cherry pie. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it, it's just called real <laughs> life, is what it is. You know, it's, it's called turning uh, 37. Um, it's called turning 30 for me. Yeah. So. Uh, let's pivot over to Amanda and discuss oh, Joan Allen. This is a uh, pretty intense stuff. I would say I remember because I think it's within the first 10 minutes we see her grinding uh, a broken plate into her hand. And I'm just kind of like, oh, boy, we're in for it, aren't we? <laughs> so. Yeah. Like, I, I think there's an Apple TV Plus special where Ari Aster is visiting the set. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, well, can we can we borrow Joan Allen for my next uh, four hour? It'd be funny be if doing. you turn on Apple TV Plus. It's just a still of Joan Allen looking just straight ahead. You know? <laughs> God, she's so fucking terrifying. She's, she's great I, here. She's amazing she's, in this. I don't understand what happened to Joan Allen. I know. It's very strange, right? I mean, she was, I think she, three Oscar nominations in like a 10-year span. She disappeared for 10 years. She showed up in luck, which didn't offer very much luck no. to those horses. And then disappeared again for like 
10 years, unless I missed something. Maybe I missed something. Maybe she was on some ABC show for 10 years I missed or something. Well, this is the know. first This is the first uh, show she's been on since 2016. She was on something called The Family. I don't know what that is. But there were 12 episodes, and she was on them. And then she was in Room, the Oscar-winning Room, in oh, she 2015. The um, I don't know. I never saw it. Oh, and she was in King's A Good Marriage in 2014. That's well, we'll, right. we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about that in King's Dominion. Yes, we yeah. will. Ah, and then, uh, mind, and she I was mean, on the killing as well. Anyways, that's my trip down. Don't her. remember on the killing. That's <laughs> what I'm talking page. about though. But I agree though, Justin. I feel like she got kind of lost by being like same way that I feel like her and Julia Stiles both hitched a ride under like the Bourne movies, and those mm-hmm. those that series kind of like killed their career in a way because they're well, like, well, you're in big movies, but you don't really do anything in it. Like you also, let's be honest, she aged out of Hollywood, right? She she became forty, yeah. and that was it. Yeah, if we're, if, if we're being honest, I mean, I know. it's the it's the Michelle Pfeiffer situation. It's it's the same thing. It's, yeah, it's not as many roles. Great. Exactly, yeah. it's not. But hey, she's killing it in this. I mean, yeah. it's not like it's not the most like you know you have to be a good actor to pull off a role like this because you're mostly just staring into the middle distance mm-hmm. and uh, being afraid of something that the audience doesn't know what it is. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that that's extremely difficult. And she achieves a certain um, I don't know, like she's dead behind the in the eyes in a very different sort of way than uh, Dane DeHaan's doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's it's yeah. And she's finding like a real tragedy. Like there is the sense that you can see that there is a living person in there, like beneath sort of the catatonia. And yeah. mm-hmm. that to me is what I think her real strength is here. Um, well, especially when you realize that what she's saying has so much weight on the story mm-hmm. you know yeah. there's like there's almost like a sort of tragic pathos to like that in the sense that like well no she probably has more understanding what the hell's going on than anyone <laughs> like, yeah 100%. there's one line that she says she says you'll see it but you won't see it and mm-hmm. just the way she leans into those words is mm-hmm. so like chilling you know and i think the contrast between her at the wedding like all like cleaned up and like looking nice and the contrast with her when she's having this episode is just really like kind of speaks to the strength of her playing this character who's really having kind of a psychotic break but without going so big that it's a caricature yeah she she's one of king's favorite type of characters is that you know the the all-knowing mm. you know the, mm-hmm. the, the the prodigy in a way mm-hmm. and she gets to kind of have these really in, in essential scenes yeah the wedding scene is interesting because in the second episode she's just like she kind of does this sort of uh nostradamus sort of you know you know you gotta love you gotta do more than just love scott you know you can't let him cross over and all and it's just like i can imagine like if i'm lisi at the wedding i'm just like all right what the fuck how many champagne how much champagne did you drink at this wedding like what, what <laughs> well there is the impl- i think that there is sort of the quiet implication that part of her loves scott um yeah, yeah. and i i'm not sure how i feel about that because i don't think it's necessarily there um unless they i haven't you know i don't know if they're going to keep pursuing that line of of thought but it's um it's i mean maybe i think there is i think it is implied though that she's jealous of their relationship because we do see that she you know uh is very i, I think that might be more because of her own relationship though mm-hmm. possibly too maybe she's jealous about what they have right as yeah to what uh, she has with her her husband sounds like a real piece of work too by the well, way well she you know had an affair uh, he had an affair and then left her uh, left yeah. her alone you know? like what a French jerk card. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I like the moment where she says like we we see each other i feel like they 
I kind of read it as like they see each other, like kind of when alcoholics realize that the other yeah. person is in recovery. You yeah. know, I feel like they kind of see each other as kindred spirits in a way. I don't really read much romantic yeah. from it, but I think she looks at him as kind of this support and this mm-hmm. kind of non-romantic rock in the well, family. Uh, which I really like that family dynamic, you know. Jen's yeah. also seen eight episodes, so. Oh, that's, no, that's true. true. Yeah. Oh, no. Um, well, speaking of, it's all I a deep think con. She, I actually do the fucking is, in episode six. As somebody who has seen the episodes three and four, I think we should save Darla for next week's episode because there's mm-hmm. more going on to discuss there. Um, yeah. And that said, I think we should pop on over to our next category, which is the good and bad gunky. Do you remember that night you asked if I was crazy? I believed in it. That's how strong his imagination is. There's a place. Here in the good and bad gunky, my favorite category, uh, this is where (laughs) we discuss what we love and what we did not love about these two episodes of the show. I want to start by saying I pretty much loved like every scene with Jim Dooley when he's talking to random people because he's a little weirdo. (laughs) And the scene with I know he's such a jerk. And the the scene with the um the librarian was I think my favorite just because he and we'll talk about the King's Dominion later, but he uh just like he was earnestly suggesting that she do this thing where she placed this book up and say, you know, you should put it uh you should use it as a means to inspire children because this is the book Scott loved when he was young but he can't do it he can't suggest this thing without being an absolute creep in the process mm-hmm. and he just, like, he just like throws everything off the yeah. top of it too like without without with any sort of awareness of what he's doing it's just like oh yeah no, this, this is where you could put it you know yeah and I love that and I also just love when he does the like when he says campers unite or whatever, which campers forever be me up, Scotty, be me up, Scotty. And he, and he does these hand movements. And I love those moments too. I meant to mention this earlier because what King and Lorraine and them have done in this is they've sort of cultivated uh, this fandom, like the, Mm -hmm. what this, what this fandom looks like, uh, which is a little bit in the book, but not as much. We get to see that there's catchphrases like mm-hmm. beam me up. Scotty is what uh, people say to Scott because he, he beams them into other worlds, you know, and then campers uh, campers forever. I don't even know what that means, but I think we can all understand that it is something that is tied to the books. And I love that he has internalized these rituals that the readers do, but they have completely lost any joy for him. And he just mm-hmm. uses them as a means of, it's just like, it's like raising your arms to Christ or, or like or uh, putting your hands together to pray or something. It's just like it's like an internalized sort of uh, sign of worship. Well, since that's coming from King, what do you think are some slogans that fans have said to him over the years? We're just like, oh god, I have no clue. Because I mean, I know people call him the Shockmeister, but that's uh, hey, Stephen. Sometimes dead is better, right? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you remember that? You remember that line? Sign yeah. it. Sign just, it. Yeah. Yeah, there yeah. are other worlds than these. Oh, God. <laughs> Long days and pleasant nights, Stephen. Um, <laughs> so no, that's, are... that's what we do. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I know. The we are the delu- We do. are the crazy fans. Uh, so... I, I love that they never explain that, though, you know, because yeah. it's like we are seeing the outside of this fandom. Well, you right. do get to see when it pans through a bunch of articles that are on the wall, you do see one headline that says, Beam him up, Scotty. Or yeah, oh. Scotty, which is which cool. I never yeah. put the connection together that it was Scott Landon is the Scotty. I was like, yeah, I was thinking about it? my good friends in Star Trek. Oh, yeah, yeah me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Anton so Anderson. I like that. Um, what <laughs> else did you guys? What else did you guys respond to in a positive way? What is a uh, what is one of the uh, good thing? Good. Gun I love movie. the uh, opening credits. Yes. yes. Yeah. If you don't think we've discussed, it's the that's beautiful. We it and, is um, yeah. gorgeous. 
And the score is beautiful. Yeah, I, so mm. Clark yeah. does the score. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you know anything about them, Jen? Nope. The, no. I think they no. work with Grizzly Bear, but I, 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 t- trust me, I'll be diving in, much like Lisi dives into her pool. <laughs> and, and to discover yeah, more about this, this band, is it a band? Is it a person? Who is this? It's a person. Where in a, in a Rachel Reeves, or a, a loser, fellow loser, she uh, interviewed him, uh, oh, and really? we'll be sharing the article soon. Yeah. Awesome. Hell yeah. Really cool. yeah. Well, that's cool. Yeah, the opening is beautiful. Just It's like these two puppets, these wooden puppets who are engaging. And I'm curious who the puppet master is uh, as... Uh, I think as, it's Psy King. As implied. Yeah, it might be Psy King. Maybe it's J.J. Abrams, uh, <laughs> the oh. puppet master. You see J.J. Uh, Abrams in a little bad robot hat. <laughs> <laughs> if J.J. was indeed the puppet master, this is not going to end well. <laughs> oh, I know. Uh, you know by, by, by around you know, episode seven, we'll start seeing some influences by Spielberg. Uh, <laughs> You're like, oh, uh, just like every, every other show and movie he's done has ended just terrifically. Uh, what's yeah. uh, what's some other good gunky we got, Jen? I love that the doctor keeps his Stephen King books at work. I yeah. was like, yes, because that's the kind of thing I would do. Yeah. I, I, I do like too. how that doctor is always fawning over him, even when yeah. he's talking mm-hmm. to him, no matter what this conversation is. Like, your, your husband was a brilliant man. Like, oh, you know, <laughs> remarkable. Mm-hmm. Remarkable. wouldn't you be be weirded out by it like you know like i think that's probably something that tabitha king has to deal with all the time oh i'm sure you know Mm -hmm. just having uh, how exhausting would that be i think that's a good way of showing how exhausting that is for the spouse of somebody you know yeah yeah um we i think mike yeah i i just love the the crisp autumnal setting Mm. uh, which seems cold right from the pages i mean I, i i just really get a sense of the place here uh, which I think is essential to the story, considering so much of it takes place between worlds and you know what's real and what's not. And God, watching this, and it's been pretty crisp here in Chicago. You know, it's been around yep, 50, bam. 60 degrees, and mm-hmm. I, I've been having the windows open a little bit, and I've, it makes me excited for the fall that, that that's to come. So I, I've, mm-hmm. uh, I just love the the I just love the setting. I just want to kind of jump in here and and not have to deal with any of the trauma and chaos, but just enjoy the world that's there. But mm-hmm. um. Um, I have one other. The band. The band at the yes. wedding was so good. Oh, I, I, I have the same note. Um, it's too late to turn back now. Great song. Beautiful. Well, that's in the book, that, that song. Yeah. 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 Great song. Yeah, yeah this um, band I just thought was incredible. Uh, I was like... It was uh, Bruno Mars, wasn't it? Oh, <laughs> he looks like Bruno Mars. Well, I will say not so incredible <laughs> that later on, you know, as mm. we see that they are playing that song uh, when they're at the wedding and they're dancing and all. And then later on, you see them having a flashback in which, you know, uh, Lisi and, and, and Amanda are, are talking outside. And obviously time has gone by, right? The band's playing the song again. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it was me? a hit. Like, no, you it's don't play a hit. Song. You don't play <laughs> song. Maybe, well, it's, my... maybe that's dream logic or something. Who knows? Yeah. I just thought it was very strange. There are other songs than these. There are other songs than these for sure. I Apple, been, Apple I was... had to pony up for Clive Owen. They couldn't afford more songs <laughs> than that one song. They're like, if we'll I'm, give you one song. <laughs> if I'm, you know, if I'm Dr. Zelinsky, uh, which is Lisi's father there, who obviously paid for the wedding, I'm, uh, and that's a reference to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the TV yeah. show, by the way. Um, Pete, that's well, Pete, Peter Scolari from yeah. Bosom Buddies and uh, Bosom Girls Buddies and, and, and uh, Girls and also from uh, Camp Nowhere. Uh, and, but most but importantly I, from Bosom no, that's Buddies. Peter McNichol is in Ghostbusters 2. Oh, I was thinking of the Scolari brothers. But okay. oh. I, I would have been a little pissed. <laughs> even deeper, Kyle, even better. Oh, Lord, Lord. Um, yeah, I don't know. Other, uh, any, how about some bad gunky? Any bad gunky? I got something here. Let's hear yeah. it. He calls her from a payphone. <laughs> What? 
Those don't exist. Is this 2006? It might it could be. be. Come on. Come on. Didn't you, but didn't you like... What the fuck is that all about? Didn't you like the ode to Goodfellas when he starts, you know, hitting the... <laughs> <laughs> he started crying on the phone. Yeah. He started hitting the, you know, taking the phone and hitting okay, it and stuff. I thought that was good. Um, yeah. Uh, what yeah, else do you guys know. got? Bad gunky, Jen? Well, as much as I loved the band, there is some cringy old white people dancing. <laughs> my destiny. not a huge fan of. That's my I destiny, mean, let's be honest. Including Lisa. I mean, let's be probably fair. Probably mine too. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, she's, she seems to be having awful. fun, but I'm like. Oh. That's all that matters. Yeah. I also was not crazy about. Um, Jim Dooley flailing around his apartment. While I like the idea of it, I feel like it just took me out. I agree. What's going on right now? This is what I'm talking about. I'm saying this, you know, I I like when they're emoting, but I think they go a little, I think both we see and Jim go a little too far when they're on their own, when they're solo bolo and they're just kind of having to go off a goal crazy. It's a little much. Dial it back a little bit. Not much, not a full degree, but just a hair. Something else. Just take it from a seven to a six. Yeah. We, didn't, we didn't talk about Darla. I think Jennifer Jason Lee's she's been a great actor for 40 years or whatever. I just think that some of the the flaws of, of I think, Jen, you mentioned it, the King dialogue mm-hmm. is maybe best represented with some discussions that she's having with Lisi in the, in the adaptation. Yeah. yeah. Some of it feels like that whole, what's the thing Harrison Ford told George Lucas? You can write this, but you sure as hell can't say it or something like that. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like she like is that. given a lot of those like she, her character is a very verbal character yes. as opposed to doing a lot of things like the other characters mm-hmm. are. So I think it stands out. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. She seems to be like exp- like Basil exposition a little bit. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think she's like the audience conduit in a lot of ways too. Yeah. 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 Um, cool. Uh, I have I, one. I have one oh, more thing. Let's one hear more it. thing. I think that. I think it's there's a lot to unpack at any given moment, and I'm hoping that it smooths out a little bit. And Grant, I you know I praise king for streamlining a lot of it but even so I, i've watched these episodes three times around and i'm still even finding myself just like kind of unpacking a lot of the stuff and trying to he- hear what people are saying like like there are some essential pieces of dialogue here that are kind of well amanda's uh, muttering too, so yeah i think it's yeah. a closed caption show <laughs> yeah right like it, fair, almost... i've had the closed captioning on anyway so oh, okay i'm kind of i think maybe i'm a little more yeah. to your point randall with you asking questions and kind of looking at the you know the point of view of the viewer this does remind me of like the first season of the leftovers which eventually got so frustrating to me that i, I kind of jumped off which everyone tells me go back That's watch the second third God i know almighty. i'll go back one day but there's a lot of work watching this show <laughs> like it, yeah and, and, I, and I, it's and not I a phone know. show yeah it's not a phone show um but there's a there's a lot of times where i'm just kind of like just give me a little more just a little more sometimes but that's that's it and i wonder if it's going to be like that till the end i'm really hoping it's not but with abrams there who fucking knows well the Um, only humor we really get is through jim and even then it's rooted in intense uh malevolence (laughs) yeah 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 only as funny as your ignorance of the book (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean it reminds me in a lot of ways of the uh, 2018 Suspiria, you know, like yeah. it's just very atmospheric, which mm. is a movie that I watched the first time and I was like, what the fuck? And now it's one that I put on and I'll put it on repeat sometimes because it's so soothing, you know, and I could see myself getting to a point where this becomes a second screen because it's just like the atmosphere is just so gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Even I when I don't always connect the pieces and I'm not exactly sure what the story is, I still feel like I am with the story and I'm kind of like a along the along the ride yeah yeah well 
Speaking of places that aren't so soothing, it's time to go to the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human. Here we are in the cemetery. This is where we talk about the things that spooked us. Um, honestly, I had, we mentioned it, but her hitting her head against the door, that was like scary to me because that's, I don't know, it was the the methodical nature of it and just like the intensity of that level of despondence and anger and rage. Um, and then Moore's face, I think, is so evocative in that in that moment. It's it's a, It was a very, to me, like unnerving moment. Yeah. So, well, yeah. it doesn't help that it's like right after she like kind of hits the fucking tee. Yeah. With her hands. She too. Does it. Yeah. Well, it, it's because I, when I first watched this, it was just like coming off of a really pretty anxious day i was like all right well we got the screeners for lisa's story so let's watch this and then <laughs> like 10 minutes in, I, was just like, Fuck. I was like i need some i need a drink after this jesus christ <laughs> any scene with any scene with jim yeah i felt was even when he's in the bar with with dash mail yeah i uh, like that scene in the bar a lot yeah um, even though he's just, in public place surrounded by dozens of people i'm still you just don't know with people like that what they're going to be capable of so obviously right, yeah. any scene with Lee on the phone with Lucy, but the library for me was the peak of the intensity yeah. of, of both episodes. Well, his rattling stream of consciousness is so creepy and unnerving. Like yeah. when he talks about like the white meat chicken and then, yes. uh, and he's like, pork is the other white meat, but it, it resembles human flesh. I read that somewhere. He's just like, it's like that kind of talk like is so disarming. Like mm-hmm. I can imagine like sitting with somebody I don't know and they're just randomly saying things like that. Like that to me is like, I'm sitting with a very unwell person. It makes me wonder like how much research Dane DeHaan put into this, you know, because yeah. I, I feel like he probably went through the files and, you know, went through all the forensic files of like, you know, past serial killers almost, you know, just the way that there's a lot of, yeah, there's just a lot of uh, uh, redundancies here where I'm kind of seeing where he's, he's definitely bringing a lot to the character and like, look, it's not on the page. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of like what Owen Teague was discussing on on this, this very show actually with what he did with Harold Lauder. I think he brought a lot to this character. um, Those characters feel like they're from the same, cloth right? yeah. yeah yeah they'd go they, they'd, they'd go on a nice road trip together jesus he writes yeah. good psychotic young men i know yeah. um yeah. he does uh, mm-hmm. other other bits that scared you jen yep i wrote in all caps several times all the cutting because yeah oh mm. like i have Ugh. a scar phobia like yeah. blood and cuts cut specifically more than blood so this show was like when she's smashing the glass and like crumpling it in her hands and there's like a squishy sound. Yeah. Like, I, I couldn't watch it. It Fuck. just, it almost made me sick. Like, and when he's cutting his arm through the glass, it just, oh, it felt so like, and that's maybe a me specific thing, but it just, oh, it really well, no, no I think that's, that's pretty universal. Like, it's I don't extremely think liked, disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of like it. <laughs> uh, you're just going to cool. go, you're like the fucking, what was that kill? What was the John Lithgow's killer in, um, Raising in Dexter? No, oh, raising, well, raising Kane <laughs> also. Yeah, you're just going to go take a bath after this and start cutting yourself. Oh, Trinity? Yourself. Oh, yeah, God. the Trinity killer. Oh, that's um, disturbing. I know it is disturbing. Disturbia. Uh, mm. But uh, <laughs> I, I have two words. Yeah. J- Joan, Joan Allen. Joan Allen. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Fucking Christ. Like, every time she's on screen, I, I just get, like, I'm, like, reaching for my fucking Xanax or something. I, I, she terrifies me. Sounds dangerous. I think, she, I think, I think she's kitchen. 
Michael Jackson's dangerous. Um, Here we go. We fit the. We fit the. Jen started off with the Scolari brothers <laughs> Ghostbusters Sorry. two reference. It went totally over my head. I'm like, oh, it's actually Peter McNichol. Keep um, the chair. And now we have approached McNichol. Michael Jackson's Dangerous album. Yeah. Well, look, she's terrifying in this, and uh, I think she's I, I, hot take here. I think she's scarier than Jim Dooley in this. Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not as afraid. It's that face. I'm not as afraid. It's, <laughs> it's that lifeless face that just really scares me. I don't know. It just. No, I'm with you, That's Mike. It's the Criterion it, cover, Mike. It's, 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 a really, it is. <laughs> it's a really, really, really uh, committed performance. Um, and I think the misery that is on her face sort of threatens to drown you. Like, it yeah. threatens to pull you in. It's like a whirlpool. And that, to me, is, like, I think what is so unnerving about her is her misery seems so all-consuming. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So, it's I'm a, with it's you. Like an, it's an Ari Aster archetype, basically. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, any other uh, any other uh, tombstones in the cemetery? I'm I'm liking the creature. And the yeah, the creatures. So oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Is uh, it the, the, long the long boy? The long boy. Long boy. The piebald side. What a fucking the long stupid boy. name, though. What I know it is a stupid name, but uh, it came from he was a kid. He came up with a name. Yeah. But I do. Yeah. I, I do like that we're just getting these really quick glimpses of it, um, yeah, and yeah. the size of it is still sort of you know uh, up in the air. Uh, we Six don't three. know. um so i like i like that aspect of it i do think um i do think the the people on the stairs is a little creepy but i do agree it's a little conjuring-esque i hope that uh Uh. they don't feel the need to lead to lean too much into sort of the harsh makeup tropes of um of uh modern horror uh but you know i think the atmosphere in the booyah moon area is sort of perfectly pitched because there's a beauty there's a beauty to it but there is also this underlying sense of menace and danger and so Mm -hmm. um yeah and i almost feel like it's almost too mysterious at this point Mm -hmm. to be really scary um Mm -hmm. so i think as we learn more perhaps that that stuff will uh will uh you know get under the skin a little bit more well it looks beautiful too i mean that's that yeah oh yeah yeah. Um, something that wasn't very beautiful. I just started a diet a couple of days ago. Mm. So the close up of Scott, you know, throwing those bacon on bacon and eggs on that plate. <laughs> and, um, and I know we're supposed to be the, the pizza slicer is supposed to be kind of foreboding, you know? Um, I just wanted a slice of that New York pizza that he was oh, cutting God. so First bad. Off, was not New York pizza. It was definitely what like was it? It was frozen it was, fucking pizza that he had made. And brought no, it looked like it was, it was in the box. Wasn't it? Hey, it looks it looks like the it looks like he has a shitload of frozen food. Like he goes to like Costco and like gets like a bunch of crap. Uh, it looked like, like it was a it was in a box that like he got from. Like I'm just local... trying to help you out, buddy. I'm just they... I'm, it's disgusting, oh, nasty disgusting. frozen food. <laughs> oh, it looked so like good. Pizza Hut to me. Oh, oh, that man, is in that case, now now you put me off officially. Well, this episode um, is sponsored by Pizza Hut. Well, well speaking you, of pizza, it's time to walk off some calories in a in a place we call <laughs> King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. Man, I'm on fire with the transitions today. I gotta yeah. be You're doing really good with the transitions, I will say. We've been uh, in the spot, trust me. So let's King's Dominion. Uh, we got a few obvious ones. We got Charlie the Choo Choo. Yep. Uh, uh, Scott's he, favorite book. Scott's favorite book when he was a kid was Charlie the Choo Choo. So we get a little bit of Dark Tower here. That's the book in the library that uh, Jim is, you know, kind of touting, and it's the actual copy. The because King actually did write Charlie the Choo Choo a version of it under the name Beryl Evans um, and released it, which is a uh, you know very cute and. And so we just did uh, Wizard and Glass. Uh, so, hey, a little bit of a uh, Loser's Club Dominion, too. 
Well, we got a little bit of Losers Club Dominion on the next one too. You know why? Because why? Uh, I don't know if you know this, but we have a se- we have a segment, or not a segment, but a, an episode feature called the Crate. Right. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. Here we go. And the crate takes place at Horlicks University. Yeah. Uh, which is uh, seemingly the, the university where Dashmiel t- uh, is from, because that's where Lisi basically says that she was looking through the the, the Horlicks uni- the yearbook, I think. Yep. And uh, which is where Scott was shot. Um, now that's a change from the book, mm-hmm. where the book is uh, Pitt, you, you know, University of Pittsburgh. So. Um, Clearly, so it, was a a, it was a bit of a fuck you to George A. Romero, <laughs> but also a bit of a we love you, George A. Romero. Yeah, Pittsburgh yeah, huh? creep show. So there you go. I, I also just love the idea that like the let's just imagine that the crate did happen in this world, so that like when they are actually like creating the library, like Scott's library, like it's happening like at the same location as uh, where the crate happened with Hal, Hal Hobro. <laughs> Well, what if that's what comes out of the study? You know, oh, he's got so. the crate in the oh, study. Lord. I hope so. Uh, also, God. Horlicks in uh, Creepshow 2. That's where the mm-hmm. students went from the... Uh, the raft. The raft. Oh, right? the raft, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, oh, did you guys ones. notice the Empty Devils poster? Okay, I be- did. Yeah. I had that one. No, yeah. What was that? What was empty, it? empty Devils in the book is described as a as a as Scott's first big bestseller, but it's a book that... Lisi really hates because it's really dark and the, there's a poster for it when they're scanning through Scott's like works and his collected works and various things and if you look at the poster it's structured just like the ni- 1990 It miniseries poster um, mm-hmm. in that there's like little boxes at the bottom that have like seven different faces oh. but they're all screaming so it's really oh, corny that's cool. and that's then cool. and then there's a clown but it's it looks very different than Pennywise and it says Empty yeah. Devils but it's a similar there's a red evil balloon clown too. yeah there's yeah. a red balloon on it as well oh, yeah. I did not see that that is so fucking yeah. crazy wait is that nickel stupid uh, i think it's <laughs> it nickel stupid it is a, yeah it is empty devils nickel stupid. stupid okay uh, got it. uh what else do you have justo okay so we mentioned that joan allen was in a good marriage right? yeah well waterville is mentioned and that is where the anderson's daughter from a good marriage went to college mm. oh mm. that is a deep one how about that i'm surprised That's you cool. got that um amanda used to live in harlow which is next to Chester's Mill. There you the go. Dome. And and Amanda is staying in her, her uh, the institution she's at or the hospital she's at is in Lewiston. Lewiston? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now this is a missed opportunity. I, we appreciate the pet cemetery nod. Of course, we can't get away from pet cemetery. God forbid. But um, why didn't she go to Juniper Hill? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Same reason we're not in Castle Rock. But I think I Juniper know. Hill is supposed to be like a dump, right? And this is supposed to be like a no, hoity It's been cleaned up. It's 2021. Look, Amanda's not going to go to the same place that Henry Bowers went to. They are from different social strata. So. Possible, possible. Well, you know, if yeah. this was Castle Rock, the show, it would have been like, uh, well, send her over to Juniper Hills. And then you'd be there. And then it's like, oh, wow, I haven't seen someone that catatonic since the Bowers boy was here. <laughs> And then it's like, oh, you mean Henry Bowers? That was my uncle. And then these guys also kind of know. And man. then another person would come in and be like, oh, hey, uh, hey, uh, uh, coach, uh, do you think I could uh, leave here 15 minutes? I got to go feed my dog, Cujo. Uh, you know. I'll, I'll drive my car, Christine, to get there. Um, <laughs> I only have one more thing, actually. Okay, what um, is it, Justin? You know, if Amanda is not – no, I'm sorry. Uh, the joke's ruined. Um, Green Lawn Hospital – what, what 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 is Green Lawn from? Um, the Lawnmower Man. If Nor if the, if Norma Bates. Oh my fucking if god! If Norma Bates <laughs> is at that hotel, 
Then who's that woman buried in Green Lawn Cemetery? Oh. Oh. Psycho's the, uh, Dominion. The master of suspense. Love it. Alfred Hitchcock. That's Robert funny. Locke. Hitchcock's Man. Dominion. Those I are some... Oh, I go, Mike. Two weird ones. One, I feel like the change from the cat to the crow could be like a subtle nod to the dark half. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, Authors. You know. Authors. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the other one, which, I, again, I haven't gotten far enough in the book to know if this is really a nod, but... When the cop tells Lisi, like, oh, rebuilding the town bandstand after the fire, this yeah. town owes you, is that a reference to needful things? Because, like, maybe they don't say they're in Castle Rock, but, like, the idea that there were fires in Castle Rock and maybe hmm. it was Scott Landon that helped someone of the rebuilding? I, I don't yeah, know. I think that probably is true. That makes sense. I wonder yeah. if Gaunt shows up at the end of this. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> Good job, Jim. I see, that you, I see that you want your husband back. Here's that first edition Scott Landon you've been wanting. <laughs> oh, Lord. All right. Um, well, on that I've note. I've got one. Oh, go, oh, yeah. I've got one. Okay, so Amanda is a double, which yeah, could I was also thinking be a twinner. Mm. And yeah. my other thought is... I feel like Scott Landon is really supposed to be Stephen King in this story. I think that he's kind of standing in and Tabby is kind of Lisey. Mm, I don't know. It seems kind I of far-fetched. Far-fetched? Yeah, Get out know, of here. I don't know. You're off the podcast for that one. <laughs> yeah. I know. That was bad. Uh, um, okay, cool. Uh, it's, time for, it's time for our <laughs> overall thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. You said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Here in overall thoughts, we we share. I don't know. Do we for the standard? We share Pennywise Clownos rankings we for did. each episode. I we, think did? we did. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then let's rate this episode on a scale of one to five. Brett read Pennywise Clownosis and shared the episode MVP. Uh, Justo, kick us off. Well, do we count these as two episodes? Oh yeah, do them. We'll we'll. Do them together. Well, I'm going to congratulate Mr. Dan DeHaan. Uh, he's back. He's my personal <laughs> MVP for this episode, although you could argue that the uh, director is arguably the MVP. Uh, yeah. yeah. Mr. DeHaan, a fantastic <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the New York Times over here. The marvelous Mr. DeHaan. The marvelous Mr. DeHaan. With a delectably delicious performance as Jim Dooley. Um, he's terrific here. You know what? Here's my one gripe I'll, I'll say. This isn't even about the show. I, I, I hate that shows are now reviewed on Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic with the critics only having watched, you know, three episodes. I know. It's like saying, okay, here's a two-hour movie. Now, I want you to watch the first 40 minutes and then write the review. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, that's my gripe. Well, Rotten Tomatoes mm-hmm. doesn't make much sense either considering the fact that they Rotten Tomatoes from... is a rotting cesspool. All right? That thing yeah. is awful. Well, it goes back to Roman times where you have thumbs up or thumbs down. Well, that's oh. where I feel like it's hard to it's hard to give like a grade, right? I think it's like, oh. hey, things are going pretty good so far, so I guess I'll give it a B plus. They should add the so green far. tomato. I don't know why they have never done. I that, don't know. It's so wait, how many noses? Hello. <laughs> um, I'm gonna give this in honor of Empty Devils <laughs> and the clown. I will give this. Um, oh God, it's so hard. Oh, for fuck's sake! It's good so far. I'll give it a three and a half bright red nickel stupid. Uh, noses. Yeah, I think we'll give this one nickel stupid since it's Ooh, it's canon. Uh, so Jen, <laughs> uh, your scale on five five dull, what five dull? dull red, uh, dull rusted nickel. Yeah, stupid. rusted nickel stupid noses. 
Um, I, gosh, man, I really dug this. I think I'm going to give it four and a half. Mm. Like this, it got me. It like hooked me Whoa. in when I thought I was kind of expecting not to like it because I didn't really like the book. So, um, yeah, four and a half. And my MVP is Julianne Moore. She's just yeah. fantastic. I feel like Nobody could, cries like her, you know? I feel like I could get there, Jen. Um, I feel like it's heading that way, but it's just, it's hard for me to go. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I learned you. my lesson after the stand episode one. You're being cautiously <laughs> optimistic. Cautiously uh, optimistic, yes. Uh, and Mike. I just throw in all nickel stupids yeah. to the wins. Four and a half nickel stupids. <laughs> your nickel stupid clown nose, clown nose ranking and uh, your MVP. Uh, I'm going to go with four. You know, mm. I think that, uh, like I was saying, I think King's streamlined a lot of the stuff that I will not be giving four to <laughs> the book, at least so far where I'm at. Uh, so I think 15 years of hindsight really helped him here. Um, at least so far, you know, look, it's only two episodes in. Um, and, uh, God, I don't know, like MVP, I think I'm going to go with Paolo Lorraine. I, I think mm. just the, the visual palette of this is just fucking unbelievable. And, I'm really, really excited th- that he's done every episode. I a love the things. A lot of good MVPs here. I just yeah, love it's that nice. It's eight episodes that I know it's nice having eight episodes, one writer, one director. Um, mm-hmm. I it's off off to the races is what I say. Uh, <laughs> all and, aboard! Uh, all aboard! Surely the choo choo. Um, so four bright red Pennywise clown, or I'm sorry, a dull, rusted, uh, nickel stupid noses for me. And my MVP is Randall Flagg as the Raven. Um, <laughs> or the Crow. Cameo. Yeah, I love the cameo. It was great seeing an old friend again from the stand on CBS <laughs> All Access uh, starring Alexander Skarsgård. Uh, so, uh, it, Paramount to, to Plus. Be fair, <laughs> if a nuclear bomb or a hurricane, whatever the hell happened to CBS, can't kill him, then a microwave can't kill him either. So <laughs> I have a feeling we'll be seeing Mr. Flag again. He's you're, coming you're gonna, back. One of the episodes is going to open with like uh, the crow in the freezer. Where am I? Like he was cryogenically frozen. <laughs> well, that was fun. We'll be back uh, in two weeks with a review of two more episodes episodes three and four and uh we'll also be back with our book review episode later this month so gear up for that lots of fun stuff on the horizon please see our socials to see what's on the way uh please leave us a good review only good reviews on uh itunes stitcher wherever you get your podcasts and uh, if you are interested in more content we've got hours upon hours of bonus episodes interviews and uh uh, commentaries on our patreon which is over at patreon.com slash the barons and uh yeah we hope you guys listen to us more uh because we just appreciate the hell out of you so much and uh this is lisey's story and now it's your story (laughs) (laughs) you know what they they say god uh you're living in the cradle of greatness it's true uh so on that note let's issue everyone some long days and and pleasant. pleasant Nice. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. But you know you want somebody to treat you This has been a bloody disgusting show. Thanks for tuning in. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, 
Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. Every town has its dark history. Hometown Ghost Stories is a paranormal podcast that goes town to town all across the globe, exploring the world's most haunted places, tapping into the dusty archives and the darkest corners to bring you the most terrifying stories of real people and their harrowing experiences. Hometown Ghost Stories dives into the history of haunted locations and investigates why and how these places earned their terrifying reputation. Rob, Dave, and Jesse go live every Tuesday night after an uninterrupted documentary-style breakdown on the case, followed by an open discussion with live viewers. Subscribe today to listen to Hometown Ghost Stories on your preferred podcast platform or watch the video version on YouTube and now Spotify. Head on over to the Bloody FM Podcast Network and check out Hometown Ghost Stories, if you're brave enough. (laughs) 